This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday. It's May 18th, 2012. This is episode number 68. I want to say thanks to our two sponsors for making this show possible. Hover.com and Rackspace.com, and we will tell you more about them as the show continues. We also want to say thanks very much to my friend, Jory Raphael. He's the guy that does all the amazing artwork and logo and icons and stuff that you see at 5x5. Well, he also has a great vector-based icon set over at Symbolicons.com, and he is sponsoring the bandwidth for these shows. So thanks very much to Symbolicons.com for making that possible. John Syracusa. Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm just Andy. Did you see the Avengers movie? I did. What did you think of it? I haven't gotten to see it yet. It was good. I mean, I I didn't think I was going to be blown away because I'm just not that into superhero movies, but it was a good superhero movie, I thought. Yeah. You know, it had a lot of the same flaws that most superhero movies have. In fact, I'm going to do a podcast about it tonight. Oh, you're going to be on that. So, yeah, let's talk about this. I know you're going to be on it. This is uh, the show called The Incomparable that uh, is hosted by Jason Snell and a wonderful cast of characters, including tonight you. Who else is going to be on there? Can we announce? Can we say it? I don't even know. We could, we could say if I knew, but I don't. I, I believe <laughs> I believe Andy Anatko will also be on that show this evening. Maybe. To talk about it. So you'll have to tune in and find out. It will be live, right? Isn't it like midnight or something? Yeah, it's late. It's like 11 p.m. Eastern time. Yeah. That's when all the goblins and ghouls come out. Yeah. Got a long day. I look at look at the schedule on five by five. I see <laughs> eleven a.m. Yeah. Hypercritical. Eleven p.m. Incomparable. And uh, somewhere in there, uh, Andy and I will be doing the Anaco Almanac. It's a busy Friday. Yeah, big day, big week. Yep. All right, we're going to do a short show today, right? Yeah, well, that's what you want to do. You want to, you know, you've got stuff going. I don't know what it is. What are you doing? What's what's happening? A meeting? Work meeting? Yeah, I just got to get back to work. Guys to work. Yeah. What are you going to do? But so this is the point in the podcast where listeners like look at the scroll bar on whatever application they're using. And if they're not listening live, they find out if we're lying or not about this being a short show. But if you're listening live, you don't know. You don't know how long we're going to go. Yeah. You just have to find out. But we're going to do it. It's going to be short. I swear. <laughs> I am here for as long as you need me to be, John. As All long right. as you want. You want to do a, a show that's 30 minutes, no problem. You want to do a show that's, you know, 90 minutes, that's fine. You tell me what you can do. 30 minutes, come on. Let's get realistic. <laughs> <laughs> that's impossible. All right, so let's dive into the follow-up because this is going to be another follow-up heavy show. I think this is the pattern we tend to follow. Like, there'll be some fairly significant topic and then the next show is just completely eaten up by revisiting that same topic and sometimes right. the show after. So this is definitely a big follow-up show. Uh, so I'll start with the smaller follow-up. The first one is from Hendrik Kueck. Well, K-U-E-C-K. I tried to look that up online. I really wish I had a good site that said type in the person's last name and it'll tell you how to pronounce it. Lots of sites do that. Sure. But I never know which one to choose. And sometimes they disagree with each other. So anyway, he sent feedback about touchscreen lag. Remember in the last show we talked about that Microsoft research video that showed 
uh, what it would look like if we had, uh, we went from today's 100 millisecond lag on touchscreens down to one millisecond. It was, a, it was a quite dramatic difference, and I was very excited and impressed. And so I got a couple pointers to other articles on this topic. One is by Noel Lopez called Lag, the Bane of Touchscreens, which covers a lot of the same ground as that Microsoft video. You know, he's writing a, an iOS application and, and making a little, you know, here's an application I wrote to show what the lag is like. And it's very similar to the Microsoft now where there's a square and you wiggle your finger around and see how much the square doesn't follow. Uh, and this is, this is in the context of games on iOS because you can imagine that's one place where responsiveness is very important. And this, this same article... Uh, links to uh, articles by someone named Mick West about game programming in general and responsiveness, not just for iOS, but for you know game consoles or anything. Uh, the first article is about what makes a game responsive, and it goes into pretty nitty-gritty programmery detail. So maybe if you're not a programmer, you wouldn't be interested in this, but it talks about the main game loop and uh, the steps of, you know... Uh, accepting user input and updating the state of the world as it exists in memory and then rendering the scene based on the new information and the, and the various things that can go wrong and how how delay is introduced between you sending some input through your input device and seeing some sort of reflection of that on the screen. And the second article by McWest is about measuring responsiveness. Like, So say you've got a game, whether you wrote it or not, how do you go about trying to tell how responsive your game is? And this always involves strange setups of like a digital camera pointing it at a television screen, but also pointing at your hand on the controller and going frame by frame and seeing when your thumb is already all the way down on the button and then accounting for the delay that's added by the television screen and trying to figure out how many frames of lag there is between the time that the button is pressed and that something happens on the screen, whatever that thing may be. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. And if you look at the times involved, it will make you respect game programmers more because it's like, all right, so how many milliseconds do I have to do all of the work of updating the entire game world and rendering the scene? And if I don't do that, uh, you know, how many frames of lag have I introduced and what's a good lag versus a bad lag? It's, it's pretty scary looking to think that these really complicated, fancy 3D games have to do everything that they do uh, immediately and they, they have like a, a 10 millisecond window to get their work done. Uh, and people complain that, that uh, you know, games are... Uh, they're they're focusing too much on the graphics. Uh, it makes me respect those graphics even more to realize that these games also have to maintain the responsiveness of those old, you know, Atari games where they just had big blocky pixels on the screen while at the same time rendering and computing much, much more. So I would encourage everyone to link these articles there, of course, in the show notes. Um, and on the same topic, John Carmack, who I follow on Twitter, who is the uh, one of the founders of id software and the uh, programmer behind uh, wolfenstein 3d doom quake and all those good things uh, he tweeted recently i can send an ip packet to europe faster than i can send a pixel to the screen how effed up is that <laughs> and he actually said f apostrophe d so he's very polite in his twitter feed yeah uh, pg rated yeah and someone saw that tweet who follows him and posted a question to superuser.com, which is the kind of, I don't know if this is the appropriate site for it, but it's one of the Stack Exchange sites where you ask questions about your computer. And someone asked this question there. Uh, he said, I saw this tweet by John Carmack. He said that he could send, you know, packets to Europe faster than pixels to the screen. What is going on there? Is he, he's got to be making that up. That sounds crazy. And John Carmack himself came to the site and answered the question for him, explaining what the heck he was talking about. Uh, I put a link to that in the show notes. So the short story is that he, John Carmack has been working on head-mounted displays and experimenting with them and is frustrated with the combination of the device and driver stack that's making 
it take longer than he would like for him to get a pixel up on the screen. And again, he's in game programmer mindset where things need to happen immediately and a couple of milliseconds is an eternity. Uh, so that link is in the show notes and I encourage everyone to look at that. Even if you're not a programmer, just to, it's short enough that you can read it even if you don't understand it all. Uh, and one more small one before we get to our big follow-up. This is actually related to that. At one point in the last show, I made an offhand comment while discussing the intent of the founders of our country. The idea about the founders of China. And I immediately backpedaled and I said, well, I don't know. You know, I said that I didn't think China had founders. And I said, oh, now someone's going to write in and tell me about the founders of China. Well, sure enough, Carl Johnson wrote in and told me about the founders of China. And I'm not going to read everything that he put here, mostly because everything that he wrote, mostly because I'm sure I cannot pronounce all of these Chinese names, and I'm not even going to attempt it. Uh, but I will skip to the end. What uh, uh, this is a story about: if you were to ask people who the founders of China are, what they would say, and how those people came to be known as the founders, uh, and backwards on through history. And so he says. The, more, the moral of the story is that people like authority and appealing to it, and if they have to make up new founding authorities to have something older or more patriotic to appeal to, that's not a problem. He basically gives the history of, like, if you wanted, if you wanted to be respected in China, you had to say, well, I'm, I'm important, but my power is derived from this ancient person who likely didn't exist. And then people would say, well, actually, my power is derived from the person who was a predecessor to that person. And they would, you know, basically make up fictional characters further into the past to show that they are the important rightful uh founders of china or founders of a religion or to get anything to accept it you had to you had to say oh, this you had to essentially fabricate a pedigree for everything involved i didn't want to read the details because then i would have chinese historians telling me that actually that person isn't fictional or is fictional or i got the details wrong but uh, i liked the little story that he provided in his email uh, at one point he says uh, <laughs> uh i just read this part i don't even know it's accurate but it was funny uh, he says, the Buddha is Chinese after all. It's the Star Wars prequel of East Asian religion. Way to tie it together at the end there. If that doesn't make any sense to you in terms of Buddhism being Chinese and everything, then yeah, I guess you can look up the history of uh, Buddhism in China and get the context. But uh, anytime you can invoke the Star Wars prequels to explain something ridiculous in history, <laughs> I, give, I give the thumbs up. <laughs> the, you approve of this. Yes. So very good letter. All right. So now we come to the meat of our feedback and the meat of the show. Can you guess what it's about? That was uh, th- so. You're you're saying that there is actually a meatier part of the follow up than any than the other parts of the follow up. Yes. That this is like a subtopic within feedback and follow up that's going to be bigger. Yes. And what will it be about? Well, last week uh, on this show, we talked. Uh, the show was called a pill that helps with whatever. And we talked about the app store. If I remember right, we talked about uh, gaming gamers. Probably has to be about the U S patent system and patents, because that was what you got the most wrong. According to, according to not personally, but according to the many, 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 many emails (laughs) that we received, which all started with, you're so wrong and you should stick to talking only about the things that you are a master of, i.e. or e.g. Pearl. I thought that was a, a lot less of uh, the people who would say they were disappointed in me and that I should stick to what I want. Most people are just pretty earnest <laughs> in expressing their opinions. And it was a pretty even split. But yes, this is about patents. 
so much feedback on patents. And I don't know if it was like the number of emails wasn't uh, so big as the average length was very high. There, were, there are people who are passionate about patents, passionate about patents. Yeah, or at least have a lot to say about it. Like, you know, instead of just the one or two uh, sentence email saying agree or disagree, they'd, they'd have to say, let, let me explain this to you. And then we're just going to write a very long. So that's why this, this section of the follow-up is so long. Uh, now, I usually do try to avoid political topics on the show, mostly because this isn't a show about politics. Although, of course, the technology world does overlap with the, the, the world of law. And obviously, patents is a way in, in, the, in which they do that. And there is an obvious Apple-related angle with the whole Lodzis thing that we you know, mentioned, even, uh, even though that topic has uh, come and gone in the news. It's still out there. Uh, so I, I think a lot of listeners were surprised when I was talking about patents at all. Uh, but mostly what I mean about avoiding political topics is avoiding partisan politics. Mm. And when it comes to patents, the idea that I eventually end up, ended up espousing the idea that all patents should be abolished, that's not a partisan topic because both parties massively strongly oppose it. It's not, this is not a red-blue, uh, red, right-left issue. N- none of the parties are given a thumbs up to getting rid of patents. It is not any part of either one of their platforms, completely opposed by every part of the existing political system in the United States. So I do feel like it's not political in the sense that it's dividing people, though that it hasn't stopped people from choosing, choosing right-left sides on this. Like just before the show, someone tweeted uh, that I was a socialist because I thought patents should be abolished. And I'm like, but isn't, I, I think they picked the wrong extremist group because the other people who are like libertarians who are writing in giving a thumbs up, like you should really look into libertarianism. I really endorse your idea. Well, I can't be a socialist and a libertarian. Like, you know, they can't even, people can't even decide which side of the, the spectrum is. I think it's not on either side of this, like, at least politically speaking, none of the political parties in the United States want to get rid of patents. Not even close. You will never convince them that they should. Uh, so that's why I feel this is largely a nonpartisan issue and mostly nonpolitical. Uh, and it, if you'd like to slot me into one, whichever extremist group you either like or don't like, whether you're a libertarian or a socialist or hate libertarians or socialists, I guess you can do that. But I think that's a miscategorization entirely. Uh, and someone in the chat room says that there's actually libertarians who love patents, too. So I don't know. Maybe these libertarians and socialists need to get their acts together and just decide what their platform is so we know which way to categorize me. Uh, all right. And so this, this follow-up will probably be a little bit scattered because I'm kind of torn between just reading the responses since they were so long and a lot of them are very well written. Mm-hmm. And I would like to just pull excerpts and just kind of letting them stand on their own rather than trying to address each one. But of course, my inclination is to try to address each one. So I don't know. I'll... I'll I, I have a lot of the follow-up in here. I'm going to read a lot of it, and I'll just sort of do what comes to me as I read it. But I think a lot of this feedback does kind of stand on its own, you know. Uh, and as I said in the last show, I'm definitely no expert on patents, and my position is certainly evolving on this issue, although perhaps not in the direction that people would like it to evolve. Uh, so in last week's, the patent portion of last week's show, I think it kind of had three main parts. Uh, the first part was where I talked about... Uh, the overview of patents today in technology in particular and what's wrong with them. And that I think was probably the most beneficial part for people who have no idea about patents, like to understand the sad state of patents in the software and technology industry now and how they're just a hindrance, a terrible hindrance and have so, so many terrible effects. And uh, it's a comical, these laws are comical because we're all in violation of them all the time. And it's just sort of dangled over everyone's head as a threat of destruction via the legal system when really no one is doing anything wrong, you know, too many things are being patented. So that's like kind of the state, the state of the patents in the technology sector today. Uh, the second part was kind of how my view of patents had evolved of, you know, uh, 
entering school and becoming and getting an education and becoming a, a professional software engineer and how uh, I slowly kept cutting parts of the patent system that I didn't think were good. And then eventually I arrived at my current position, which is that I, had, I have eliminated everything and I just think no patents are good in any circumstance. Uh, but there's one, one good point uh, when I was mentioning the, the, uh, the concept of a patent troll. Uh, this is a company that collects patents, then sues people for violation of them. Uh, one point that I neglected to emphasize uh, that a couple of people wrote in to uh, tell me that I should have emphasized more uh, is not just what patent trolls do, which I think I explained and pointed to that uh, episode of uh, so This American Life, I think, uh, in cooperation with Planet Money. Apparently, it wasn't a Planet Money episode, but that's in last week's show notes. Uh, that does a good job of explaining the situation. But the thing to emphasize about patent trolls is that they don't participate in this game of mutually assured destruction with patents where big companies hoard patents and they say, well, I have tons of patents and you have tons of patents and we'll just kind of look at each other and glare across the table and say, well, if you make a move, you know, I'll sue you back with my patents because I've got a patent on, you know, uh, sending data over wireless network and you've got a patent on looking at a screen with your eyeballs. So we'll, you know, don't even come near me because I've got crazy patents too. Uh, patent trolls don't participate in that because the patent portfolios of big companies are not useful as weapons against a patent troll because patent trolls produce nothing. They produce nothing that could possibly violate a patent. They collect patents, but they themselves don't make any products. So they've got this war chest of, of patents, and they can come to a company and say, we're going to sue you. And that company's big portfolio of patents is not a threat to them. Say, well, we're going to sue you. So what are you going to sue us for? We don't make anything. We don't have any products. We don't have any technology products at all. We couldn't possibly, unless you have a patent on patent trolling, which I think a couple of people have tried to get. Uh, there's nothing that we do that's patentable. And that's that's what makes patent trolls just so incredibly insidious that that they, you know, the arsenal of this, this silly war that we have with these patents, even even those ridiculous weapons are not useful against patent trolls because they avoid them by not actually producing anything that could possibly violate a patent. Uh, and Josh Biggs mentioned that uh, the patent situation in technology more closely resembles nuts than mad. You know what nuts stands for? N-U-T-S? That like it's an abbreviation for something? Yeah, I tried to Google it. Uh, I don't think he made it up because I remember hearing it like in the 80s. You know, I mean, we all heard mad in the 80s, you know, in the, in the war games era and the Cold War. Yeah. Mutually assured destruction. Well, nuts is nuclear util utilization in tactical situations. I don't know if he just made that up, but I think it's the idea that uh, unlike nuclear weapons, patents actually are used all the time. And they're used sort of uh, tactically to yeah, as, as weapons in small skirmishes. Uh, and it's kind of ridiculous. This incredibly powerful weapon is used to, you know, eliminate competitors and take your thumb and squish out a little independent Mac developer like Lodzis is trying to do. Uh, so whether it's mad or nuts, it's definitely bad. <laughs> yeah. So in the in the feedback, there was very, very little disagreement that software patents are a mess. I don't think there was a single one. I didn't want to say zero because if there's one guy whose feedback got lost in the mix. Uh, but I can't remember seeing a single email that, that passionately defended software patents and patents in the technology realm. I think everyone agrees that those are a big, giant mess. I mean, it's just obvious to anyone who works in the industry or, or is an observer of it at all. Uh, most feedback, I would say, focused on my uh, eventual position that I thought patents should be entirely abolished. And those, you know, there's two broad categories of those. There's the people who agreed with abolishing patents. Uh, and I, there was a much higher percentage of those that, than I thought. I, I mentioned on the show that I rarely hear about the idea of totally, totally abolishing patents when I'm, you know, reading things on the topic. But apparently I'm just not traveling in the right circles because those people are out there and they wrote me. Uh, and I think I'll talk more about that that general movement in that direction uh, later in the follow-up.
Uh, and then there are the people who disagreed with abolishing patents. Uh, most, most of those feedback included some ideas about how the patent system could be changed to avoid the bad parts and to keep the good parts. Uh, so is that uh, possible? So you're saying people wrote in to suggest that this was possible. Uh, I don't, I don't know if they didn't really get into the mechanics of being possible. It basically said like, look, we agree. Uh, I agree with you that there are bad parts of the patent system, but what if we do X, Y, and Z, then isn't that better rather than saying, you know, we should abolish patents entirely. So here are some of the things they suggested, uh, shorter patent terms, disallowing certain kinds of patents that are currently allowed or just generally being smarter about what kind of patents uh, are approved Restrictions on patent ownership, like only letting individuals own patents and not corporations. Required licensing of patents for reasonable fees, so you can't either extort or refuse to license your patents to other people. And all sorts of other things, many of which exist in the patent systems of other countries. So we had people from like different countries in Europe and the rest of the world saying, well, here's how our patent system differs from the U.S. system and here's why we think it's better. So lots of feedback about that. Uh, and then uh, on, on last week's show, I talked about what I thought was the strongest argument in favor of keeping some kind of patent system, and that was the pharmaceuticals industry. Uh, and, and then I said, uh, in the end, I didn't uh, even that strong argument I didn't find convincing. And when I was talking about the pharmaceutical industry, what I meant to say and what I thought I had said until I listened to the program was that there's a tremendous appeal to emotion in the, in the idea of the pharmaceutical industry and patents. I think I said appeal to authority probably just because it, I'd said that several other times and it just came out. But what I meant was an appeal to emotion. And it, it, the emotional component of this is pretty obvious. Like we're, we're all mortal and any efforts to help cure illness or prolong life are, are going to be very important to us. It's kind of the uh, important to us in an emotional way. It's very difficult to talk in a detached way about healthcare because, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of the version of the, the cliche is won't someone please think of the children. Well, in the case of healthcare, it's won't someone please think of the everyone because we're all going to get sick and die someday, right? So healthcare is is like... But, um, but, oh, my God, we can't mess with that because, you know, it, it has a, a very big emotional component. Uh, whether you yourself are ill or know someone's ill or whatever, even just abstractly, if you can think about the concept, healthcare is uh, kind of held sacred. So that's why it's difficult. That's why it's the strongest. It feels like the strongest argument against patents because it had do, we do have that emotional connection with it. Uh, and the vast majority of the anti-abolition feedback, like don't get rid of patents entirely, uh, contains some restatement of the same article, uh, argument that I think I said on the show against uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Like, basically, explanations of how the current pharmaceutical industry works, how the absence of patents would prevent it from working in that way, and also how I failed to provide an adequate solution for doing the things that are currently done by the patent system. Uh, not, not a lot of new... The, ideas and new arguments in terms of here's why you need patents. Most people went right back to, I guess it's because I focused on it or whatever, but most people went back to the pharmaceutical industry and basically re restated the same, the same stuff. Like, and I, I, that was a lot of good feedback, but I guess I didn't go into enough depth on the show to saying that I had thought about those things. They, they obviously find those, those arguments very, very convincing that, uh, just merely by looking at how the pharmaceutical industry works today, uh, and and saying how if you remove patents that doesn't work anymore that's that's a, a game ender for a lot of people and they say that's it that's why we can't ever get rid of patents and again these are the same people who are still on board with like let's fix the patent system let's make it not crappy for these other realms but in the realm of healthcare healthcare and pharmaceuticals it needs to be there or otherwise we're going to be up the creek 
Uh, so that's that's the broad categorization of the feedback I got. And it was a, a, a pretty even split between people who were, who were big thumbs up to what I said, people who were uh, totally against it, and people who were like, you know, in the middle and wanted to just change things here and there and suggestions of ways to change it. There were a lot of good suggestions for ways to change it because I don't know anything about the patent systems of other countries. And so it's heartening to know that other parts of the world have come up with better systems than we have, uh, at least in these particular areas. Uh, but that shouldn't that really shouldn't be surprising to me. All right. So now I want to go through specific instances of feedback. And this is the part where I'm going to read from your letters. Try to read from your letters. I apologize as I mangle your name. Um, why, don't, why, don't, why don't you practice some of those names while we do a, a quick sponsor? Good idea. Our first sponsor, and, and you know, I try and switch these orders up so they can keep it fresh. We'll start with Hover. Simplified domain name management. This is, this is something I'm so psyched to tell you guys about and have been for the last couple of weeks because it's such a wonderful site. It's such a straightforward way to register a .com or a .net or any of the other TLDs that you might want to register. You go to hover.com. Well, you should go to hover.com slash Dan sent me because then you'll get 10% off. I'm getting ahead of myself. You go to hover.com. There's a little search bar right there. You enter a domain name or maybe you don't have one in mind, but you have some keywords. You have some terms you might want to You just type them in just like you're doing a, a Google search. You hit search. It'll come back and suggest some names for you. It'll suggest them. Now, if the name or the word that you typed in happens to be available, it will tell you that it is available and you can register it right there. You don't have to unsubscribe or, you know, reject a hundred thousand different services. In fact, you're not even prompted to sign up for any of them. A few things that are there, like who is protection, that's going to be enabled, but you don't pay for that. It's built in. What's also built in is their really awesome transfer system so that if you like them and you want to try moving a domain over, you can do that pretty easily. It's got a cool little, uh, you know, when you order something from Amazon or FedEx and it shows you the little progress bar, they've got that for your domain name transfer. And they can even handle the whole transfer for you if you want. They have a service that does that. They make renewals just as easy. So when your domain expires, they say, hey, your domain's expiring. And they hope you come back and register it again. And they also do email hosting with a whole webmail interface and everything else. It's very, very cool. And it's super simple to use. This is a really, really great, they have a very active and responsive uh, support group, and they're also on Twitter at Hover. So really, they're there. They, they're ready and willing to support you. Just like the Ghostbusters, they were ready to believe you. These guys, they're ready to support you. I think that could be their, their slogan. We're ready to support you. Anyway, I'm just throwing it out there. They're going to have to run with it. Go to hover.com slash me. And you will get 10% off anything and everything that you buy and do there. And you can use that coupon over and over and over again, as you should, for every domain that you transfer and buy with Hover.com. So thanks very much to those guys for making this show a possibility. While I was doing this, a little research, I researched the sponsors. I went there into Hover.com and I typed John Syracusa into the search. Space, you know, John, space, Syracusa. And it would seem that johnsyracusa.com is not uh, available, but john-syracusa.com, available. johnsyracusa.cc.ca.bz.asia, co, it, pro, johnsyracusa.pro, tv, all available. People can go grab them. Just saying. I think I have the dot name of that. 
I, I did. I purposely didn't get the dot com because I thought it was dumb. And then I eventually changed my mind and I said, oh, I'll just get the dot com. But it was too late. But I think I do have the dot name. There is Celo Syracusa, C-E-L-O Syracusa dot com. That was suggested. That is a premium domain. You can get that uh, for $500. All right. But I think John Syracusa dot Asia, just something you can consider. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're international, man. You're big there. You're big over there. Huge in Japan. A couple updates from the chat room. Josh Biggs insists that he did not make up nuts. He says he's a political science graduate from St. Louis University. <laughs> uh, definitely did not make it up. So, See, he, although that does sound like it. the kind of person who would make it up. You think so? Yeah. Yes. And uh, there's been feedback for the past few weeks. They keep calling me on my mispronunciation of the word nuclear. Uh, let this be a lesson to you parents. If your child is mispronouncing something in an adorable way, Correct them because eventually it will stick. And I am probably physically incapable of spontaneously saying nuclear unless I like really concentrate on it. Uh, it just comes out the other way. Yeah, uh, I know it's wrong. I'm not. I'm not ignorant of the correct way to pronounce it, but my mouth disobeys. Uh, so, to the specific cases of feedback. And by the way, the show notes, this is going to be a lot of reading feedback and then referring you to show notes like I already did in the beginning. I strongly encourage you to go to the site and read these show notes. This is going to be like 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 68. 68. You'll be able to find all these notes. Uh, you should read them. You should look at them. I, you know, I don't have time to read the articles over the air, air to you. We just have a lot of things and we're going to have more links now. Uh, so the first one is from... Brent by the way, Royal. hey, you, you, you mentioned it. Let's just do it real quick. Thanks very much to the helpspot.com ladies uh, who write the best help, us, help desk software in the business. They, they are making these links possible. They are literally moving the hand of Syracuse to make these possible. So thanks very much to them. They, they're giving people 100 bucks off if you use a coupon code 5x5. Is that too much? It's a lot. That's a lot. All right. All right. Uh, Brent Royal Gordon, who I think has written before because he has such a distinctive sounding name. Uh, he wants to correct me and say that my estimate of the cost of developing a drug is off by an order of magnitude. I think I threw out some numbers uh, in the last show about how it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, to create a drug. And who's going to pay? Who's going to do that? Put that money into it if they're not at the end of it going to get a patent that they can uh, derive profit from without uh, people just immediately copying their hard work. Uh, he says that a pharmaceutical company spends anywhere from 3.7 to 11.8 billion to produce a drug. So that's, you know, not hundreds of millions, but tens of billions of dollars. And, and he's, although he wasn't specifically addressing this, many other emails uh, discussed like different ways. A lot of them who are in support of abolishing patents said, oh, we don't need the drug companies to do it. We can have the government funded and so on and so forth. So Brent Royal Gordon throws out some numbers on that. He says the entire health research grant budget of the federal government in 2011 was 34 billion. If they match the performance of the most efficient drug company, they could produce nine new drugs a year. Uh, the Red Cross makes $3.3 billion a year. Uh, they could produce at most one drug a year. Uh, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute has uh, grants $825 million per year. They could produce one drug every four or five years. Uh, and all these numbers are not even close to the current patent-based system, which produced 35 new drugs in 2011. Uh, and he says, and I hardly need to point out that they're unlikely to match the very best performance of a drug company. I think the idea is that the government government funded or things given grants cannot match the performance of a commercial company. Uh, so he, he concludes, there is essentially no way we would have a pharmaceutical industry without intellectual, pop, intellectual property rights on drugs. I've, and I very much doubt we would have a steadily growing inventory of drugs without a drug industry with large monetary incentives to invent them. So 
there's some there's some hard numbers for you about the way things are today. And uh, Brent's conclude based on those numbers. Someone who I have listed only as Mitch, probably because I once again gave up trying to find this person's last name after clicking through three or four links. Sorry, Mitch. I couldn't find your last name. <laughs> and I had a lot of people to look up. Uh, he wrote a blog post out of the, about it, though, and I linked in the show notes. Uh, his his uh, website URL is mitchcalculated.blogspot.com, which I thought was funny. Uh, he says, abolishing the patent system would be the largest government seizure of property since 1864. Uh, you know, Say what you will about the nasty business of patent trolls, but they acquire their war chests by paying inventors for patents. Uh, making those patents worthless is tantamount to busting down the doors of their banks and emptying their accounts. Uh, do you know what he's referring to about the uh, uh, largest government seizure of property since 1864? No, which what is he talking about? When they came and got in all those guns? In 1864? Yeah. He puts a little asterisk on it, and uh, he says, This example also makes clear that such a seizure of property might potentially be an awesome idea. Paying off all the plantation owners for slaves might have been cheaper than having the Civil War. So he's referring to uh, Civil War-related matters, I believe. Well, wait a minute. I do not. I am horrible at history. But is he talking about the Battle of um, something? Wasn't this in Florida, too? The Battle of the Pond, of uh, the Ocean, Ocean Pond, Battle of Ocean Pond? He isn't specific about it, but he, the, the general concept is that uh, if you if the if the U.S. government had simply paid all the plantation owners right. for all their land, it might have been cheaper than engaging in civil war. Although I would say that you'd still have that whole slavery problem out there, which, believe it or not, we will get back to later in the follow up. Uh, but I linked his blog post. A lot of people wrote blog posts. I'm sorry that I couldn't link to all of them. I did try to read all of them, but I, you know, I, I to pick and choose uh, representative samples. So Mitch, Mitch has a link in there. Uh, and so this, I see. I can't. I can't move on. I have to comment. This idea that uh, <laughs> that that it's seizing property to take away patents. Uh, what it is is changing the fortunes of people who have patents. But the government does things all the time that uh, end up making you have less money than you had. For example, government policies lead to lead to a collapse of the housing market. If you own real estate, did the government seize property by taking billions of dollars out of the uh, the real estate market? No, your house is just worth less, and that's a bad thing, but it's very different than them coming and taking your house from you uh, when, you know, ignoring foreclosures where you have failed to pay or whatever. Uh, but the, the, the root of this is the idea that that it, it's property, that patents are property, that that ideas are property, that this is a thing that you can own. And this, this comes up in the copyright debate as well, where like lots of people in the industry like to call copyright uh, violation theft, uh, where you're not you're not violating a law and infringing on on rights. You're actually stealing something. And in the digital world, it's really fuzzy because it's like, well, if I take it and you still have it, did I really take it? You know, you just copied it, and it's because things can have bit for bit copies. Uh, so I think we'll talk more about this later in the feedback. But this this the uh, this underlying assumption of the idea that it would be a government seizure of property. Two things are that one is the idea that the government takes it from you. And now the government has it, and two is that it's a thing that can be taken. Right, that it's that it's like like physical property in a way that connects with people viscerally. That like you are taking my property from me. Mm. Uh, so, uh, an anonymous patent attorney wrote me a patent attorney who wishes to remain anonymous. Right. Let's say, uh, and uh, the one thing, the one nice thing he did say was that he thinks my comments on patents were very intelligent. So that was nice of him he, to he say. He knew and how then, to butter you up, warm you up a little bit. Yeah, and then he went on to before he drops a hammer. 
Yeah. And so he talked a lot about uh, the patent situation, but he suggested a book. And uh, I think this is telling that the patent attorney suggested this book. It's called Patent Failure by James Besson and Michael <laughs> May Beer. That's a great uh, name. And and it's it's reviewed by Timothy Lee at Ars Technica. So I link to both the book itself and the review at Ars Technica. You're not probably not going to read the book, right? Because it's a big, long thing. But at the very least, read the review of it at Ars Technica. Uh, and so, I, I mean... It doesn't. I guess it doesn't surprise me that if you work in an industry, you're all full of complaints about it. But this is this is the book he recommended to me: patent failure. And as you can imagine, it is not a ringing endorsement of patents. And this is coming from a patent lawyer. Uh, so here's Hendrik Kuek again, whose name I still can't pronounce, but I keep trying. Uh, he made some comments about the idea of public disclosure. I talked about you know the the one of the big motivations of patents is to keep you from keeping your your secret techniques to yourself. Share them with the world. So that more people can benefit, and by sharing them, we will have legal protection so that uh, you don't get ripped off. So we'll give you this exclusivity, but in exchange for this exclusivity, you must reveal your patent to the world. And he says, uh, patents are written in a language that is impossible to understand by anyone who isn't a patent lawyer. Speaking of patent lawyers, I can't imagine anyone searching through patents to find a solution to a technical problem. This mostly is yet another case where you can point to the technology and software industry and show how the patent system is totally not working for them. There's no one in the technology or software industry that creates a product by looking through patents to see, uh, to find good ideas. That's just not how it works. Not like like some of the time or rarely, pretty much never. People make a product and then what happens is the lawyers come in and go, oh my God, you made this product. Let's see how many patents you're violating and who owns them. It's never the other way around. It's never like, hey, uh, this patent system has disclosed all these useful inventions for us. Now we have access to them too. Let's go through those patents and find awesome ideas and then license them. It's not how it's not how it works in the software industry at all, uh, for the reasons we talked about last time. The, the, the things that are patented are ridiculous and broad, and uh, you know, it, and and as uh, Hendrick points out, even if there is an interesting and novel idea in there, if you're not a patent lawyer or someone versed in that legalese, can you even read these things and understand what the hell it is they're talking about? Like we've all tried to read patents with these Apple rumors. Sometimes we know like this is the patent that led to MagSafe. And we only know that after seeing MagSafe, we can look at the diagrams. But if we were to read that before MagSafe was invented, it's very confusing as to what they're talking about. Uh, and the more more technical the patents get, uh, the more difficult it is to understand. So I don't know if that's just a, a artifact of our legal system. But in general, technology, the people in the software and technology industry are not combing through patents to try to find what they're going to build next. As you know, we don't have any ideas. Let's look through some patents. Uh, yeah, someone in the chat room just linked to uh, KJ Healy again. This link to contextfreepatentart.tumblr.com. My favorite patent thing, this is unrelated to <laughs> the, whether my patents are a good idea, is patent hands. Do you know what patent hands are? This is where anytime you touch something, it turns into a patent. No, but that would be interesting. It's like jazz hands now. Yeah. Uh, in patent, you know, they have the diagrams in patents showing like, uh, I don't know why they have to look like this, but the, they would show some sort of thing that looks like a screen and then a person holding a pen or whatever. And whoever they get to draw this artwork for patents, like you think it would, you'd think it'd be like one guy, but the hands. Okay, let's just establish hands are hard to draw. I understand that. <laughs> That's right? true. But you would think if you're spending tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, you could find some guy who could draw a hand. So if you go through patent artwork and and look look at the hands, they look like the most misshapen, mangled, that is, that is true. Appendages. Like they don't even look human. And it's like, geez, spend you know. <laughs> Throw an extra thousand at, at like some guy who can draw you a hand for your really important patent. So patent hands are a big thing with me. Contextfreepatent.tumblr.com. <laughs> oh, <is>, man. 
<laughs> these are really bad. I just did a search on this, and I'm gonna have I'm gonna we're gonna have to put some of these into the show notes because these are. <laughs> hold on, we don't usually do this, but I, I'm just gonna te- I'm gonna message this one to you. Look at this one I just sent you. <laughs> Look at the hands in this yes, one. Yes, that's, that's a patent hand right there. The arrows, <laughs> those are 100 percent patent hands. Like they're not. They're. I'll put them. Like I'll upload from, them to Flickr or something and put them in the the show notes. Something like that, that. That's a scene in Total Recall, right? When he puts the hand into the <laughs> in the big alien shaped thing. Oh my goodness, this is really bad. All right, I'll put I'll put those in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I put, I put the site in already. You can put the other thing. In. All right. All right. Uh, so here is Carl from the pharmaceutical industries. Carl, I believe, didn't want me to use his last name, but he is from uh, somewhere, something related to the pharmaceutical industry. Here's what he has to say. And th- these are all not, I'm not reading their full emails. Most of them are very long. I just tried to pull out sections. So don't, don't think that I'm reading word for word what they said. I'm leaving stuff out. Uh, oops, I'm going to get back up here. Where am I? Currently, there's a pretty desperate situation with a lot of very big pharma companies as their products come off patent and it open to generic competition. Uh, what has the seven-year patent protection done for innovation? Very little. In fact, there is an argument to be made that the patents have stifled innovation as the cushion of a monopoly, though limited, has acted as a disincentive to innovate further. Not all companies have the same long-term view as Apple. For all their investment in R&D, it hasn't achieved anything. In fact, all they tend to do is make stronger versions of the current product or slight amendments in order to extend a license. And for all their investment in R&D, they invest just as much in patent protection and legal services. Remove the patent and they don't need lawyers and can double their R&D. So Carl was one of the first people from the pharmaceuticals industry slamming the pharmaceuticals industry. Uh, I guess that's probably also not surprising because, again, if you work in an industry, you're, you know all, what all the bad things are about it. Uh, so the next one is from Sal Kulkarni, who provided a pronunciation. And so get, I hope I got it right. He says, I'm a pharmacist who works in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, the strong arguments against patents, which you presented, that there would be no incentive for drug companies to invest if people could steal their work after they did it, may not be such a strong argument after all. After all, my view is that FDA regulations can and should prevent the situation you describe. That is, the FDA is well within its rights as well as within clinical obligations for health and safety of the pharmaceuticals to do the following. Mandate that after a compound has been discovered and proven to work in a disease state and then approved for whatever its indication may be, uh, any other company which creates the same compound via reverse chemical engineering must prove the same or similar effect based on their technique of manufacturing. Uh, and he goes into quite complicated detail here about things that I don't understand about the pharmaceuticals industry that like when someone makes a generic version of a drug, it's not like a an exact copy like you would make a copy of a digital file or something. Uh, not only is it not an exact copy, but it not, might not even be assembled in the same way and the FDA currently kind of does some like, well, the chemical structure is similar enough that, you know, it's okay. Uh, and his idea is that that system that if, you know, it's like, well, someone else did spend all the money in the approval process, which is a, a huge chunk of the cost of bringing a drug to market is that, that approval process of getting past the FDA. If someone else does all that work, you don't just get to freeload off of that work and say, no, we can just bang out the generic version because we'll just look at what they made, buy one of those pills, reverse engineer it, make our own pill and say, oh, no, no, FDA. See, it's like it's chemically similar enough to that other guy's thing. So uh, his solution with that, uh, instead of using the patent system is to simply say, oh, so you want to bring that drug to market? Well, you have to prove that the thing that you make is as safe as those guys did. Uh, he says they can't just send the FDA, the chemical structure and PK. PK is how pharma co-kinetic profile and say that it matches. Uh, so I'll read a little bit of this just because I think it's fun to 
talk about these details. Uh, because each manufacturing facility is different, and there are many methods of putting chemical bonds in their specific places, some better than others. Different techniques uh, may have different pharmacokinetic, I should have practiced that word, profiles, which in turn may react differently in vitro as well as in vivo. There, uh, therefore, even though the patent for the compound may not exist, there is a moral imperative for the FDAs to not approve the Me Too compound based on the fact that its effect in the body is not well defined solely based on the nature of the chemical structure itself. Furthermore, expedients used, i.e. binding agents, lubricants, capsule gelatins, also vary between manufacturers and techniques. Uh, and he goes on to say how the current generic system works and how they, uh, uh, and how they relate to the name brand stuffs. Uh, let's see what we have here. And, and what the, the rules they have to go through to basically get their products to market, piggybacking on the work done by others. Uh, and he says that uh, these rules could be bolstered to require actual human clinical trials, not as much as the initial, initial critical trials from the originator's company, but enough to supply a window of exclusivity for the originator's compounds. In, in essence, patent exclusivity without needing a patent. So uh, the idea is to take, take the burden, the, the burden that uh, drug manufacturers have to go through to pass this FDA hurdle and spread it more evenly amongst all people who are going to make this instead of front loading it all on the one guy and then saying, well, to protect you from people ripping you off, since they don't have to go through all that clinical trial stuff, uh, we're going to give you a legal exclusivity. Well, rather than doing that, just make everybody who manufactures something that they think is similar, prove that it's similar and not just say, oh, well, it's close enough and hand wavy or whatever, because for all you know, the way they, uh, you know, made that chemical structure may not react the same way in the body because it's not, it's not like a, it's not like copying a digital file. They're not like making the exact same pill atom for atom as the ones the name brand is doing. Many things could be different. And uh, if we held them responsible for proving that the thing really does what they, they say it does, then that gives the radio manufacturer a window of exclusivity simply by the fact because they can't pass, uh, they can't uh, become certified by the FDA in the amount of time that's, uh, that's left there. So that was a, uh, a pharmacist giving a suggestion for a similar system that doesn't involve patents. And speaking of that, Thomas Pogue has a TED talk called Reimagining Pharmaceutical Innovation that I linked to. Uh, here's the synopsis. By reforming harmful supranational super regulations, Thomas Pogue is developing a complement to the patent system to simulate, stimulate pharmace pharmaceutical innovations that would be accessible without delay to poor and affluent patients alike around the world. So here is someone trying to come up with a parallel system to patents to, to work in places where patents don't. And a couple of the people sent in examples of like uh, drug companies uh, willingly foregoing patent protection in third world countries just to get their drugs out to more people. Uh, so like sometimes the patent system is, is a hindrance to them uh, getting what they want. So they would have said, well, we'll just ignore patents because we're trying to do some larger good for the world. Uh, and this Thomas Pogue thing is, is an idea for an alternate system. Ian Silverwood writes in uh, about the idea of trade secrets. He says, if you have a trade secret, but then you die, the knowledge is lost forever. Knowledge is accumulative, and patents allow people to build on others' work. If there are trade secrets, then improvements to someone else's design are unlikely because you cannot know how their system works. Uh, I, I read this one mostly because uh, of the assumptions underlying it. And the assumptions underlying it are, are uh, kind of linked to that one with, with patents as property. The first idea is that if you come up with an idea uh, that you have some... I'm not going to say ownership because that's a loaded word, but like that, that that idea came from you and it, uh, if you die, that idea goes with you and the world doesn't benefit from it. And, and it, implicit in that is the idea that, well, if you came up with that idea, you are a special and unique snowflake and no one else is going to come up with that idea, right? That by thinking of the idea, 
I keep going back to ownership, that you, you have ownership of it because if it wasn't for you, no one would know this, right? No one else could have thought of this because you are special. And now you own this idea because, hey, I thought of it. And as far as you know, no one else thought of it. And if you die, that idea will be gone. Uh, and so that, that's the kind of the myth of invention that uh, these, these magical people come up with ideas. And once you come up with the idea, uh, without me, that idea would not have existed. And therefore, I have rights associated with it. Uh, and so here's, here's uh, Ian saying that that's the purpose of the patent service to get you to disclose that idea. Because if you don't disclose that idea, the world does not benefit from it. Obviously, I disagree with this notion that, you know, well, if, if uh, I keep this idea as a trade secret, now the world will never have this idea. Well, I'm, I think the world will have that idea because someone else probably already thought of it. In fact, as I'm so often of, uh, uh, like to bring up in the show, probably a million people in China already thought of it. <laughs> Just the law of averages, right? It's a one in a million idea. Uh, so th that, I think that is a common understanding of the creative process, especially in America, again, with the, uh, with the, the American dream and the idea of uh, individual exceptionalism, that if you come up with an idea, of course you have rights, uh, some, some rights associated with that, because if it wasn't for you, that idea wouldn't have existed. And therefore, shouldn't you be rewarded for that idea? And shouldn't the patent system exist to encourage you to share that idea? Because if, if, the, if you have no incentive to share that idea, the world will be without that idea. Oh, I should have practiced this name too. Uh, Guan Yang, G-U-A-N, uh, points to some stuff from economist Dean Baker. Uh, and he has a big paper uh, from September 2004. It doesn't surprise me that these are old because, again, I don't, didn't know much about these issues until people sent me these links. Called Financing Drug Research. What are the issues? And here's the little abstract. Rising prescription drug prices are take a toll, taking a toll on American families and on the greater economy. This paper explores four alternatives to patent finance prescription drug research and compares their efficiency. So if people wanted to look at some, some ideas from an actual economist about how the drug industry could be funded uh, without patents, and I think this is focusing on uh, controlling costs because the current patent system, though creating a lot of drugs, is also uh, creating a lot of expensive drugs. So here's, here's an exploration of possible other ways to fund uh, the pharmaceutical industry. And speaking of the idea of the of the individual important inventor, Aaron Pressman gave me a bunch of links related to that. Uh, the first one is uh, something from Robert K. Merton. Uh, he's making the case that eureka-type breakthroughs and inventions are more myth than reality, and that most important breakthroughs are made at the same time by multiple independent sources. Uh, this Robert K. Merton guy lived a long time ago, so this is not a new idea. Uh, he, Aaron says that he doesn't think this guy's most famous paper entitled The Normative Structure of Science is anywhere online because it's from 1942. But if you look at Robert K. Merton's Wikipedia entry, you could find a lot about it. Uh, so I couldn't uh, link to that paper. Uh, uh, but he, he makes a similar case in a 1968 book review of James Watson's book on discovering DNA. And this is in the New York Times. I have a link in the show notes. It's called Making It Scientifically by Robert K. Merton. Uh, and then he, uh, Aaron points out in a more recent link, I'll, I'll quote his description here because he's another person who sneers at Malcolm Gladwell. In his typical science-drowned anecdotes method, Malcolm Gladwell made a stab at explaining Merton in The New Yorker once. Uh, and he says, in case you can guess, I don't like this article very much. Uh, this is in The New Yorker. It's all about the idea of the individual inventor. And it's in, if you don't like Malcolm Gladwell, you probably won't like this article because it's Malcolm gladwell -y. But if you do like Malcolm Gladwell, hey, there you go. He, he makes a accessible, fun version of the same idea. Uh, and finally, he provides a link to an article in Science Magazine or whatever it's called. What, is, what are they called? Scientific Publications? Yeah, from, Scientific Journal. There you go, Journal. Uh, from May 1998. 
called Can Patents Deter Innovation? The Anti-Commons and Biomedical Research. It's by Michael A. Heller and Rebecca S. Eisenberg. Link is in the show notes. Uh, and here's the abstract for that. The tragedy of the commons metaphor explains why people overuse shared resources. However, the recent pro proliferation of intellectual property rights and biomedical research suggests a different tragedy, an anti-commons in which people underuse scarce resources because too many owners can block each other. Privatization of biomedical research must be more carefully deployed to sustain both upstream research and downstream product development. Otherwise, more intellectual property rights may lead paradoxically to fewer useful products for improving human health. This is another example of people involved in an industry and this is, you know, the healthcare and the biomedical industry seeing patents as causing damage to the industry and stifling innovation rather than encouraging it. Uh, Aaron Truss was, uh, gave one of the best summaries of uh, challenging the idea that I put forward about uh, not caring about the founder's intent when I was talking about the copyright clause and that I don't particularly care what they intended. I only care what's a good idea right now. Uh, a lot of people uh, send in a similar idea that, well, you know, why do we care what the founders think? That question I posed last time. Uh, and he, he says, basically, we have two tools available in the U.S. court system to figure out how the judicial system should interpret the law. One is stare decisis, which I hope I pronounced right, which is basically precedent. It's saying, like, you know, what, what court cases have been decided about this in the past? So precedent is a big influence on, on uh, how the judicial system works in this country. And the second one that we have to go on is, is original intent. What is the intent of this law? And then you interpret the law according to that original intent. Uh, and so Aaron points out, uh, when, when there is no strong precedent, when it's, when it's unclear, when our legal traditions offers no clear direction, one should look at the original intent by the authors of the bill for guidance. Uh, so that's one reason why, why many people said that you have to look at the uh, intent, because otherwise, how is it that you... How, how how does the how does the judge do how does the judicial branch of government do its job? It's supposed to interpret the laws, and the laws just are a bunch of words on a page. So, if they if we don't have legal precedent to go on, which is leaned on heavily in, the, in this country, but if there is no legal precedent, you have to go on what's written on the page. And how do you decide how to interpret that? And original intent is the other thing that they uh, lean on to say, well, what what was the person who wrote this law trying to do? And let's see, let me see if I can figure that out. And then I will interpret the law according to that. Uh, my reaction to that, I, I think I was thinking in the last show, I don't know if I alluded to it. I don't remember. I went on a long time about this founder stuff is that I, I do believe that that's what they think they're trying to do. But my cynical view is that both in the case of both precedent and, but especially in original intent, Judges will all say things that make that there are they will argue from the position that I believe that this interpretation of this law is more in keeping with the original intent of the people who wrote the law. Therefore, you know, like the, every opinion they give has to be presented in terms of precedent and original intent. And yet we we have uh, pe people's individual belief systems, which aren't supposed to enter into it. Like you're supposed to be interpreting the law and looking at the original intent and, and precedent and not inserting your own opinion. But we have things like the Supreme Court that splits completely evenly down partisan lines. And it just so happens that one half of the Supreme Court uh, thinks the original intent was, was this way and the other half of the Supreme Court thinks the original intent was that way. I, and it's like a chicken egg thing. Like, well, it, do they have their personal, are their personal opinions the result of their views of original intent or are their views of original intent a result of their personal opinions on the law? Hmm. I, I think there's a lot of 
again, this is very cynical, so maybe you can feel free to disagree with me, but a, a lot of self-delusion is going on where you will make yourself feel better to say what I'm really doing is interpreting the original intent, but in reality, what you're doing is deciding what the original intent is based on what you think it is, and then and then not coming out and saying it, not saying, well, I'm interpreting this law this way because I don't care what the original intent was, but this this interpretation makes more sense in the modern world. You can't say that, I guess, as a judge. You have to say, oh, no, I totally really think that the original intent of this law was to be like this. Mm. And the fact that that judges, just like any kind of normal person, just split so neatly along those ideological lines, I, I think that's clear evidence that, and again, it could be chicken egg either. Uh, I don't know which one is leading the other, but I don't think it's as detached as conceptually we'd like to think it is, that you that you you're dressing up your your personal opinions in the code of original intent simply because original intent is unknowable. How can you know the mind of someone who, even if they're still alive, you can't even know their mind, let alone the mind of someone long dead. Uh, and so I think that's what judges are doing, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Like I'm in favor of judges interpreting the law based on what actually makes sense now, and not worrying about uh, what people thought back then. But they have to dress it up that way. They have to say. Oh, I'm deciding this way. You know, precedent is another thing. Like you've got precedent, and that's the more cut and dry. Is you just look at past cases and see what those opinions were, and then you know, you have precedent to go off of. But for original intent, when there's no precedent, or when you need to augment precedent with something, they always have to say, "Well, I believe the original intent of this law is X, Y, and Z." And it's almost like, uh, like witchcraft, or like having a séance. Like I believe that this law was intended to do, but you know, you're <laughs> interpreting like written written word is not precise, uh, and. And they can't come out and say, I don't really care what the, guy, what the original intent of this law is. Their original intent was stupid if that was their original intent, and we, and we should interpret this thing differently today. But in effect, that's what happens. Over the years, the same exact words get reinterpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted. And do you think as we get farther and farther away from the time that the laws were written, people are getting better and better at figuring out what their original intent was? Or are we just simply changing how we interpret it because the, the old things don't make any sense? That's what I think it is. I think that regardless of what they say and what the principles of our legal system are, as time goes on and as you get farther and farther away from any particular law, the, the creator of that law, like many years and they die and so on and so forth, we just keep changing the interpretation. And it's not because we're getting better at discerning original intent. It's not because we're getting closer to the original intent. It's because we're disregarding slowly but surely disregarding original intent and saying, I don't care what the heck they thought 10 years, 50 years, 20 years ago, whatever. That is stupid. And this is the way we think now. And and then you have to say, okay, I believe the intent of this law was not to blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's kind of like theater to me. Uh, I'm probably angering more legal people and they can write in to say, oh, they really, original intent really is a real thing. Uh, KJ Haley points out that the, the, the problem is that the legitimacy of the court system strongly depends on preserving, preserving its nominally apolitical stance because it's supposed to interpret and not make the law. That's true. Like, I understand why they have to dress it up. And I think a lot of the time they're not, it's not like they're dressing it up. Like, it could be the reverse. It could be that they their personal opinions are because that of what they've decided about original intent and not the reverse, but it's such a, it's such a mix and judges do break along political lines, even as high up as uh, in the Supreme court or ideological lines, if not political lines, right? That they don't break along their lines because they have a difference of opinion about what the original intent was at their root. I think they disagree about what's best and, it kind of becomes like, oh, I don't think they could have attended, intended that because that's dumb and they weren't dumb. And it's, it's kind of like a weird indirection. Like we can't actually talk about it. We have to argue about what dead people thought, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I think as, the, as you get closer, like if we have laws that were created like last week, 
that's much easier to know intent because like the people are still alive. Yeah. You talk to them. You know, it's it's more likely to match up with our current situation. And it can be much more clear that a law created last year, like well, we know what they were trying to do with this law. Uh, I think then original intent probably does become more important because then, you you know, like you're interpreting a law and you can't say, well, I don't care what they thought. Uh, I think it should be this way. Well, that law was just made like a year ago. Like you can't pretend you don't know what they meant to do. It's not so distant from, you know, you can't disregard their wishes because that's the whole there. Again, the, you know, the legislator is supposed to make the law. You're just supposed to interpret them. And if you're having trouble interpreting this law, like don't willfully misinterpret it. But the founders is what I talked about last show. And that's that's a long period of time. And we've already like reinterpreted and reinterpreted, you know, the Constitution so many different times uh, and, and very old laws that still happen to be on the books. We just keep reinterpreting them to mean different things like state constitutions uh, that have been on the books for a long time. They just get reinterpreted. So uh, I think it, I think I've come around to thinking that original intent does have an important purpose in our legal system. But as you get farther back in time, like uh, as the law that you're trying to interpret uh, was created uh, longer and longer ago, it starts to fade and starts just to become window dressing, in, in my opinion. Uh, so I was I was fairly convinced by the many arguments that original intent is necessary for the legal system, but not so convinced that it has any, that the, the original intent of the founding fathers is particularly relevant and, and that I should care about it for any reason. Um, Eric Smith writes in to say, John's opinion of patents is clouded by the fact he's a software engineer. Again, the implicit... Uh, understanding that, that patents are so disgusting in the software industry. Right. If he were an electrical, a mechanical, or civil engineer, I don't think he would have such strong opinions. And he's an electrical engineer, and he says patents work okay and serve a useful purpose. Uh, then he goes on later in his letter to complain about patents a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the uh, representative of the position that, okay, so patents are, are, have bad things about them, and patents in the software industry really do sound terrible whether they heard about it on, from last week's show or they just knew about it already, but patents work well in areas X, Y, and Z, and therefore patents as a concept shouldn't be, shouldn't be ditched. Here's Nick M, intentionally omitting his last name. He says, I'll, I'll add to the point that pharmaceutical companies already have no incentive to invent cures. I imagine it's more profitable to research and manufacture treatments, not cures. Then you have recurring ill people buying expensive pills versus one-off super expensive cures. This is the conspiracy theory of drug companies that they're like intentionally not. They could cure you, but they'd rather sell you a pill that I don't I don't really buy this, but it, it it's representative. You don't, you don't of, buy that? No, it's, it's, it's representative of, you know, the bad feelings about pharmaceutical companies uh, from some people. It's just like they don't want to cure you. They just want to keep selling you a pill. I, I mean, there's a kernel of truth behind that that I think we heard from the other people in the pharmaceutical industry that a lot of times they do focus on uh, things that they know are patentable or variations on existing drugs or things that are marketable and things that are not so marketable don't quite get the, the, the funding, but it's not a conspiracy theory where there are mean people intentionally trying not to cure you. Uh, if no pharmaceutical company is sitting on a cure for cancer because they'd rather tr send you a treatment pill that just like keeps cancer at bay. If they could cure it, they would believe me. You don't, uh, you don't believe that there's any motivation for without getting too far off tangent, you don't believe there's any motivation for pharmaceutical companies to come out with something that, will help you, but that, yeah, maybe you're going to have to take it for the rest of your life. Like uh, Nexium. Well, it's, they're, they're not doing that. Uh, they're not ignoring a better solution because that's just what they happen to come up with. There, there is the idea that the current system incentivizes certain behaviors, but it's, it's not as if they could do one thing, but they're intentionally not doing it because they want to make more money doing it the other way in terms of like curing versus just treating. Hmm. 
uh, Nickham says, perhaps without patents and with an alternate source of R&D funding, for example, the government, there would be a win-win for researchers, manufacturers, and consumers. Perhaps then we would see some truly revolutionary cures. Yeah, this borders on the, you know, I, I just don't like conspiracy theories that we would have these awesome, you know, revolutionary cures. They know about them, but they're yeah, not. Yeah, I don't buy that. I don't buy that myself. I don't think that there's somebody sitting in there, you know, with a cure to cancer and like, we won't release. No, I don't believe that. Yeah, so I don't believe that for a minute. That. That's like from a bad movie. Yeah, right? I don't buy that for a second. But I, I don't think that pharmaceutical companies mind that a lot of the drugs they come out with are drugs that people take for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Of course, they don't mind it, but I think it's more about what what the current system incentivizes right. and not like them deciding to do a particular thing because it's evil or not evil. I get, like, I, get what, I get where you're coming from. Like, like it, this is the system that they're working within and this is the behavior that incentivizes and they didn't come up with the system. They're just working within it. Uh, so speaking of that, here's an anonymous listener who writes in to say, What's a well-intentioned software engineer to do when the company they work for, the company that pays them very good salary and provides relatively stable employment in this economy, tells them to patent their software no matter how obvious the idea is while dangling money in front of them? The obvious answer is don't work for a company like that. That's fine for Merlin. But I, ba- I fear <laughs> that basically every company has this mentality due to the current state of the patent system. So his question, which was longer than this, but I'm summarizing, is like, what if you don't like software patents, but you're working as a software engineer and your company says, no, whatever BS you come up with, you have to patent it? Because, you know, what is there a conscientious objector stance? What should I do? Should I not work for this company? Should I quit my job? Should I try to find some middle ground here? Uh, despite my stance on patents, the, the system we have is a system we have, and I think you have to work within it. Uh, and this stupid game where companies hoard patents, uh, this is why I don't get too mad about people doing it because like what's like what's the alternative you know google's like oh google's buying motorola to get more patents or whatever well that, that's the game we all have to have these big patent portfolios and them intentionally saying we're going to take a principled stand and not get any patents who is that good for it's not good for their employees it's not good for us who might like the products of this company might produce who's going to get crushed by everybody else it's a stupid game but that's the the game. It's like saying I refuse to pay lawyers because I disagree with the legal system. Well, you're not going to last long as a company if you refuse to pay lawyers, uh, and you're not going to last long as a technology company if you decide you don't want to participate in this patent hoarding game. I guess it is a more principled stand, but I guess I'm more pragmatic. And so what I would say is, it's not your fault that the patent system is the way it is. Uh, if you really can't get on board with the idea of doing software patents and you'll feel bad about yourself, then yeah, find another job. But personally speaking, I would I would be sad about it. But it's like. If you want to change that, change find a way to change the system. But with, within the system, I don't, I don't look down on companies that decide. Well, this is the system we're in, and we have to operate within it. Um, and and a perverse part of me says, like, the more companies engage in this ridiculous practice, the more evidence mounts for the stupidity of the system. And when there, sometime in my lifetime, maybe there actually is political will to change this, we'll be able to point to all this crazy evidence of how much money and time and effort these companies spend on this stupid game of collecting patents on obvious crap and then threatening each other with them. Right. So, so I don't know what the solution is. If you feel bad about it, then I guess your only option is to go in a different industry or find a new job. But I, I personally don't look down on anybody who does that as part of their job. And I also don't ding the companies for it because they're working within the system as it exists. Uh, and the system as it exists is crappy. But the alternative is for them probably to be much smaller, be much less successful, or go out of business. And who does that help in the end? Right. Our second sponsor is Rackspace Hosting. And uh, I've been talking about these guys for a while because they've been a big supporter of our stuff. And they have some really cool, they have some really, really cool hosting solutions. That's what they do. Obviously, you want a server, you can call these guys up and they'll build you the server, the exact server that you want. 
be absolutely, you know, you want this much RAM, you want this, whatever it is. This is what they call managed hosting. This is when we used to say, oh, let's get a server, you know, racked up somewhere. This is what you're talking about. But these guys have beyond extraordinary support. It doesn't matter how big your business is. It could be one person. It could be 50 people. You don't need an IT department for your hosting stuff. These guys can do it all for you. But you know what? You may be thinking, well, I don't know if I need like a managed private cloud. I don't know if I need co-location at this point. I mean, they do all of that. They also build you just one server and you can have it. Well, if you're not ready for that, you don't think you want it, you're not sure. Maybe it's not your kind of thing. Maybe you like the virtual stuff. Well, that's where their Rackspace cloud services come in. They have a managed service level for that too if you just don't ever want to think about it. Or you can do the whole thing yourself. They have the regular Rackspace cloud servers. They've got Linux, Windows, whatever it is that you want on there. On demand, you click a button, the order goes in, and it's set up for you pretty much instantly. And you want to dy- dynamically scale this thing up? You think, oh, you know what? John Syracuse mentioned me on the show. I better scale it up. Scale it up just like that. They also have something really cool called Cloud Files. So this is secure also. It's scalable, but it's online storage. You pay just for what you use. You store the files that you want to use. They've got a really awesome file manager that you can use or an API if you're the programmer type. And uh, it's fast global content delivery on the Akamai CDN. It's powered by OpenStack, which if you're a developer, you already know what that is. This on-demand storage and content delivery, great for any kind of files, whether they're images, MP3 files, you name it. So check these guys out. You can check all of this out by going to Rackspace.com. And if you want to see the cloud stuff I was talking about, Rackspace.com slash cloud. Thanks very much to the Rackspace people for uh, being such longtime supporters of this program and other programs here at 5x5. Yeah, I'm looking back at Nick M's comments, and I, I, I think I, was, if you, I wasn't trying to say that Nick M is specifically a conspiracy theorist, just that his email reminded me of people who do say things like conspiracy theories. So I don't want to be unfair to him, because he's, he basically is talking about incentives and what's incentivized. He was not saying that they have secret cures in vaults. It just led me to think about the people who say things like that. But Nick M is not one of them. I just want to be clear right. and be fair to him. Uh, I like so, that I can hear your your uh, mouse yeah, wheel this loud. time. This is a different... Usually I don't get to hear the mouse wheel, but well, this usually, one I can hear it. You know why you don't hear the mouse wheel? Because what, what I usually do is move the scroll thumb, and, and the click is much more quiet. Uh, but I, Lion's lack of arrows on the, uh, the scroll bars is annoying me so i can't really click on the arrows hold down on them and sometimes i fall back to the mouse wheel it's do a lot you do you always view the scroll bars did you have that option checked yes i, I finally broke down and checked it finally yeah. after i don't know how long this line been out i finally just the other day i, I just with a single yeah. tear down my cheek i just said i gotta do it so beautiful too beautiful to live is scroll our scroll barless world right <laughs> unless you're on ios that's right uh, so jeff cooper writes in again about original intent uh, he says, whatever one might think of original intent, it's besides the point in the intellectual property realm. The Constitution sets a broad goal in a general methodology to promote the progress of science and the useful arts, blah, 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 but leaves the specifics to Congress. So he's saying that like original intent doesn't matter because the that clause of the Constitution does not say exactly what has to be done. They just kind of give the goal and don't you agree with the goal? And I do agree with the goal that science and the useful arts should be promoted. Uh but I think it does say how. It's pretty darn specific. I mean, not like down to the exact laws you have to enact, but it says by securing for a limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writing and discovery. So it says the way that you're going to do this, this thing that we, that our goal to promote the progress of science, useful arts is 
giving government granted exclusive rights to authors and inventors for their writings and discoveries. And this is the copyright and patent clause. Uh, and that I think, you know, that's specific enough for me to, uh, <laughs> I think that you don't have to, they aren't leaving completely up to Congress what you do. They say basically, oh, you have to promote the science and the useful arts and you have to do it by granting government sponsored monopoly on intellectual property rights for writings and inventions. And then you can interpret it from within that. But I think it's pretty darn specific. Uh, it's not it's not completely broad and just completely left up to Congress. Uh, because you can imagine many ways to promote the progress of science and the useful arts that don't involve the government giving exclusive rights to, to intellectual property, what we now know as intellectual property. Uh, and he says, second, I'm baffled by John's apparent conflation of ideas and inventions. They are not the same thing. A cure for cancer is an idea and is not patentable. But a particular chemical developed at great expense for the purpose of treating a particular cancer, that's more of an idea. Uh, this, I think I have a thing on this same idea later, but so what's the difference between an invention and an idea? You know, what, what's the difference between something that's purely conceptual and a manifestation of that concept? How do you define that? Yeah, I, I guess I'll get, I'll, I'll get more to that later in the notes because we're almost getting up to it, but I'll, I'll just leave that out there. That's, that's his, his point and a couple of people brought up uh, what their own personal opinions of things that you should be able to patent, like inventions, and things you shouldn't be able to patent, which are ideas. So his uh, just example is a, a cure for cancer is an idea. Hey, we should cure cancer. Not patentable. Hmm. But a particular chemical developed at great expense, blah, 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 for the specific purpose of treating a particular cancer, that's an invention. Many people in their emails made that distinction and they just put things on one side of the line that should be patentable because they're inventions and shouldn't be because they're ideas. And as you can imagine, that line for individual people moves all over the place of what, what they think is on either side of the line or not. It's definitely, but the main point is it's definitely not clear cut. Uh, so Jeff concludes, I'm not at all reassured by John's asser assertion that if patents were eliminated, although the industry would be badly disrupted and research would slow down substantially for a while, everything would be all right in the end. Yeah, because you right. said that in, in the last show. You said you thought that it would be a horrible disruption for a period of time, and then everything would just coalesce and everything would be okay. Right. And so he doesn't buy that. And he also says that in the meantime, during the period of disruption, which would likely be lengthy, many people would die early and others would suffer unnecessarily because of the disruption of research. Uh, so this was a common refrain, uh, especially from the people who explained in great detail how the current system works. The idea that uh, here's how the current system works. And if you break the current system, many bad things will happen. And uh, many people were very sure that without the current system, it wouldn't be possible to develop cures for things. Like, not that you would just have fewer of them, but they were just like all progress would cease. But like bad things would happen and continue to happen. There would be no replacement uh, for those type of things. I, I think I already provided a bunch of links to other people who have other ideas of how you could uh, help fund uh healthcare research without the current system. And then, of course, there was the other things about like, well, if you just take the current, you know, people say, let's the government funded, but the current government expenditures uh, would not come close to covering it. But then on the other hand, no one is saying that the you would, you would keep the exact same system as we have now and keep government expenditures exactly the same or whatever, you know, whatever your alternate theories are. But many people are simply not, not reassured, not convinced, and I don't blame them, that if we just take away this thing that we have now, that something will emerge to replace it because that's very hand-wavy. And I think I described it as very hand-wavy, and it totally is very hand-wavy. Uh, so here's Craig Branley, who is a physician. Your one area of concern, pharmaceutical research, is nowhere near a big as, pro uh, as big a problem as you think. 
The reality is pharmaceutical companies are not, for the most part, researching novel treatment, but instead spending most of their time and research money on Me Too drugs that are potentially profitable, but very unlikely to bring anything new to the realm of treating human disease. Worse, they use unscrupulous practices, such as selectively publishing research, to get drugs approved and to cater to the most base of human instincts in marketing psychological drugs uh, with questionable benefits to the elderly and the depressed, i.e. the more vulnerable. So as a physician, I wholeheartedly agree with your idea to ditch patents and actually think your one concern destroying the pharmaceutical industry status quo might actually be the most wonderful result of all. Again, another instance of someone in or related to the industry slamming it for the things they don't like about it. Uh, and I think he also provided a link to an, an hour-long video from another doctor, Dr. Marsha Engel, about the dark side of drug companies. Uh, so if you if you are a conspiracy theorist about drug companies, you will enjoy this video. It is in the show notes. <laughs> uh, and finally, the last the last section here uh, is from my friend John McCoy, who actually provided an IM during the show to say that what that guy was referring to in 1864. Uh, he says he thinks he's talking about the Emancipation Proclamation, which was actually 1863, not 1864. And I'm assuming his politically incorrect impl- implication. The, the author of that blog post is that the largest seizure of property is when you know the Emancipation Proclamation came and all of those slaves that were the property of people in the South were now emancipated and now you had removed their property, which presumably they paid for, which is fairly distasteful and perhaps not a great analogy. And as I said, we will get into distasteful analogies, uh, more of them right now. Uh, so here is here's this one from John McCoy, and he, I asked him whether I could talk about this on the show, and he said, as long as you emphasize that he he realizes this is a terrible analogy and that's why he would never use it because they are not equivalent uh, he was trying to. He was in the process of when he came up with this, trying to think of a better analogy that actually was more appropriate. So, with that disclaimer, the idea that these things are not equivalent in any possible way, and that he would really like to come up with a better analogy, but this is what we've got so far to, to work on. And so, his idea is that uh, people defend copyright and patents on the ground that it makes possible things that would otherwise be impossible or unlikely. And the answer to that is that the pyramids, you know, the pyramids in Egypt, are remarkable. Uh, and and they were only possible through slave labor, and so the wait the moral, you, mean, you mean no aliens or, or aliens one or the other okay. but the, the, the the upshot is that you can't judge everything on outcomes alone. Uh, so here's the idea that so even if we accept the most extreme version of this is even if we accept that the current patent system in the U.S. is the only way to produce the number and scope of drugs that we currently have, if you decide that the patent system is not justified morally, ethically, or whatever, you can't say, yeah, but we really need that cool thing. Therefore, you know, the ends justify the means, right? So like I said, oh, the, par- the pyramids are awesome. Does that mean you endorse slavery? Well, no. Well, what if I tell you you could not have made the pyramids at all without slave labor? And you're like, oh, well, the pyramids are cool, but there's no other way to make the pyramids during that time without slaves. You know, I don't even know if this is true historically. People can write in and tell me that the pyramids were not actually built by slaves and that's bogus or whatever. Again, this is a bad analogy, but the... Pretend it's all fictional. None of these things are real things. The, the basic idea is that you can't just look at the outcome and say, well, I, I totally want that outcome, so I don't really care if the system is uh, bad or good. Uh, I don't think most people are doing that because I think most people do think that the patent system is, you know, the idea of patents uh, is a solid one, is fair, is justified, is moral, ethical, whatever, whatever word you want to use. Uh, but... If you don't, if you think that the idea of, of exclusive ownership of an, of an idea or even an adventure or anything like that is not the right thing to do, as I currently feel, 
it's not particularly persuasive to say, even if I accept that your idea is true, that like, well, we wouldn't have the drug system at all. You know, we wouldn't have the, wouldn't have these drugs at all if we didn't have this system, right? And and you could be weighing evils like, well, do you want all these people to die? Well, now you're getting like, all right, so maybe you know, it, you're weighing what's worse, this thing you oppose the the, the patent system or people dying. So it's, it it does have do have to weigh things, but you can't just ju- judge by the outcome. You have to talk about how those how those outcomes came to be. Uh, what was necessary to make that happen? Uh, and, and speaking of this, and speaking of the copyright and patent clause in the Constitution, as I think I said on Twitter to somebody recently, there is definitely a path from the idea of no patents for anything to the idea of no copyright for anything. But I personally have not walked that path. Uh, and this gets me to the, the line between an invention and an idea. Uh, and I think that line moves uh, as technology makes things more trivial to create. Uh, so the, the extreme example, for the extreme example, we must go to sci-fi and to uh, humor you, I will go to Star Trek. <laughs> to, if, humor, if, to humor me. That's right, to humor All right, you. All right, thank you. If we had Star Trek replicators, right? If we had, you know, you could just assemble anything at the atomic level, right? Okay. Wouldn't copyright law apply to all matter? Right? It, it's, it's only, it's, a, it's an accident of history, uh, maybe not an accident, but like a, our current point in history makes some things trivial to make exact duplicates of and some things less trivial. And I think most of the people are talking about invention versus idea and where that line is. That line is defined by the technology available today. So if we all had Star Trek replicators, everything would be copyright. Because you said, I carved this beautiful wooden carved chair, right? I did it by hand with a knife. <laughs> and you snap your fingers and go, all right, well, I just made my replicator make an atom for atom copy of that. Right. And you're like... You know, you know, you well, can't just but maybe the they could do they could do something exactly like what we do now when you try to play a DVD and it's got the protection on it. They could well, you can't replicate that hamburger. That's you know right. that's patented. You, you got to pay right. put a dollar into the machine first. Right. So like the things you know, what's an idea and what's an invention? Like you took my invention. Like I made that chair with my hands, right? Or even if it's like a, not a novel chair or whatever, like and you made an exact duplicate. If you can make an exact duplicate of any matter atomically copyright applies to everything because it's like you assembled that thing you know it's like i made this song i played instruments into a microphone i mixed it all together i sang and here's my product and of course you can't have that song because i made that song but oh you made this direct digital copy of it well we have copyright law to prevent that right uh that line between what is an idea i'm going to make a song and what is an invention like it's mostly defined by what we can copy Uh, and because Obviously, I can copy your idea. Hey, I, I should cure cancer. Well, that's not patentable because hey, I, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that too. I just copied your idea, you know, trivially copied. But if you make a physical product, well, of course, you can't copy that because that's just crazy talk. Well, what if I make a digital product? Oh, well, that starts to get into copyright. Like, you can't copy a performance. Like, you know, if you, if you play a song and sing it and then I go to the next town and, well, songs are difficult, but like, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example that doesn't involve current copyright. But basically, uh, all, all physical property becomes subject to copyright if it can all be trivially copied as easy as, as uh, you know, ideas can or as, as data can, right? Uh, and technology is the thing that changes this. In the past, the things that were copyrightable were like, you know, you could copyright things that were written and in music because like it's, it became easy to copy things that are written on a piece of paper. Uh, but the idea that audio produced in a concert hall was copyright only becomes a factor once it becomes a bill, once you have the ability to record that audio and copy it because otherwise like it's not it's a non issue if you're if you're you know in in uh, in Mozart's time listening to uh, a concert you're not worried about 
geez, I wonder who owns this sound reverberating through the air. Nobody owns it because you can't capture that sound and, and play it back somewhere else. But once you can, then, you know, law extends to that thing that previously law didn't care about at all. Law only cared about, like, you know, the, the composition that you wrote or, or something you had on a piece of paper. It didn't care about the sound traveling through the air because that's not copyable. Um, and, and this is why we can't expect laws from the past are still equally relevant now, or even that today's laws are particularly appropriate for the present because... And within this particular realm, it's so defined by the technology available to us. So it's absurd to think that this law, the, the, the current laws that we have, are, are even able to deal with technology we have today, let alone that, you know, those laws from hundreds of years ago are, are just as relevant today. And that, you know, the line is clear between what's an invention and what's an idea, what's patentable, what's not patentable, what's subject to copyright and not subject to copyright. It's totally fuzzy and totally moving as people invent things, which is really painful. Uh, so here's a quote uh, in my own little personal uh, ironic appeal to the authority of the Founding Fathers. This is a Thomas Jefferson quote, which other people sent me. So, uh, But you should judge it on its merits and not by who said it at all. Uh, he says, no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs to the living generation. They may manage it and then what proceeds from it as they please during, during their something, some word that I can't read because I think I miscopied and pasted it. U-S-U-F-R-U-C-T. Maybe it's an old word. I don't know. They are masters of their own persons and consequently may govern them as they please. And he concludes, every constitution, then every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. So that, that was his estimate of a generation. But this is the idea that it's impossible to make a law that applies to all future generations because, I mean, I don't think he had in mind technology was changing. Uh, K.J. Healy says is, it's, it means right of use. Yusufruct? Wow, I cannot pronounce that word. KJ Hill, you want to provide a pronunciation to me? Uh, but I, I think this idea, I mean, this is, he's just talking in general, not particularly about copyright or anything like that. Uh, but that idea, the law, the idea that the Constitution and other laws have to evolve and change. And of course, that's why there's built-in ways to change the Constitution. As difficult as they may be, they exist. Uh, but in particular, on, on copyright law and patent law, Technology is, has such a big influence on this and is advancing so fast. This is kind of why we're in this weird situation where we all agree that, that patent law is, is terrible for the software industry uh, because technology just raced ahead of what, what the uh, law was. It raced ahead of, of the current judge's interpretation of the law. It raced ahead of the law as written. It raced ahead of everything. And you get absurd situations. And I think this will just continue. Uh, and so that's why it, it, I think that there, there is a path from saying no patents on anything or no patents on software or anything that you decide, okay, well, that obviously isn't patentable. The reason it isn't patentable probably has something to do with technology. And as technology changes, I think anyone on any side of this issue will slowly expand the number of things that they believe patent doesn't apply to and copyright does apply to. Like that line between invention and idea and work and writings and discoveries will just keep moving as technology advances, not because your opinion on anything changes, but just because the world changes. I think that's the underlying issue with this entire uh, thing here. And now, finally, this is uh, the the big paper for people who want to better understand the idea of no patents on anything, uh, and for that matter, no copyright on anything. This is a paper called Against Intellectual Monopoly. It's by Michelle Boldrin and David K. Levine. Many people sent me a link to this. I linked in the show notes to a free version you can read online in the form of PDFs. And also the Amazon paperback version, I think, is a Kindle version as well. This is a very long 
book-length paper explaining at length the argument against, as it says, against intellectual monopoly, against having exclusive rights granted by the government to things that are intellectual, to things that are ideas. And again, this gets back to like, well, what's an idea? Well, I say an idea is this, and you say an idea is that. That's not an idea. That's an invention. And and where you draw that line. This is the broad brush. Here's why, as a concept, idea, you should not have monopoly on things that could be considered intellectual property. Uh, and one of the quotes from the Amazon page, like one of the blurbs from the book from W.A. Brock at the University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison, his blurb on the book begins with something that was going through my head the entire time that I was reading all these emails of people saying, basically, here's how the current system works. And you didn't tell me any way that I found convincing or any way at all that if you got rid of the current system, uh, that things could still work. Uh, and it, you know, if you really want to change something, you have to make an argument that says, here's, here's why it's bad. And here's, uh, why you should change it. And here's the system that we have to replace it. That's better in, in every way or whatever. Uh, and the quote is one should bear a heavy burden of proof to enjoy a monopoly. That's kind of how I view it. That like, you know, even though the current law is what it is, and realistically speaking, if you wanted to change something, it would be your job to convince the world that you're right and convince all the states to change the Constitution and stuff. I accept all that, which is why I accept that it will never be changed in my lifetime. Uh, but intellectually and in the abstract, I think the burden of proof is on the group of people who say that uh, government-granted monopoly on intellectual property, uh, just because it's the way it is, uh, well, I don't have to explain why that should be the way it is because it is the way it is because reality is on my side because that's the way it is in this country and I don't have to justify that at all. In fact, you have to justify it to tell me why it shouldn't be like that. That's true if my goal was to change the law, which it's not because I believe it's not possible. Uh, but in the abstract, intellectually speaking, I don't feel any, I don't feel any responsibility to, uh, to do the opposite. In fact, I think they bear the responsibility to say this incredibly important, powerful, broad-reaching thing you better have a darn good reason why you think the government should grant this thing. And the reason can't be because it's in the constitution and, and that's what the country is based. Like that's why it is the way it is. But like in the abstract, say we're landing on a new planet and we want to make a new government there. And we were debating how should our government work? That's kind of the, the, the way I'm coming at it. I think the burden of proof is on them. When you're trying to give powerful thing, uh, give powerful, uh, you know, uh, it's not really rights, but like, give certain powers to the people, you know, you have exclusive ownership over this thing. What defines that thing? Why do you deserve exclusive ownership? That's where the burden of proof is, I think. Right. Uh, so this, it's very separate from the idea of like, I, I think people thought that I was trying to like rally the world to like overthrow this, you know, the clause of the constitution. Like, that's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. As I said, both political parties and pretty much everybody in the entire country is totally thumbs up for patents. Uh, you can't even get, patent reform to make the part that everyone agrees is terrible. Forget about abolishing patents. That's never going to happen. It's not my goal. I'm, and, and in fact, I'm not particularly trying to convince anybody because as I said, like I arrived at this, not, you know, I arrived at it gradually, slowly. And I was just kind of trying to explain how I got there. And if you're trying to see like, what are the arguments from the people who are on the, on the far side of this, who are saying no intellectual monopoly ever read this thing against intellectual monopoly. You, you probably still won't find it convincing, but at least you will have the arguments that you looked for. Uh, so from, from John McCoy again, uh, he says, I think the most interesting thing, uh, point in this book brings up is that a lot of people think patents are a good idea and then something went wrong. Uh, but you can easily find cases from the early days of industrialism that show how pat show patents blocking innovation being used anti-competitively, et cetera. 
So some of the examples in this against intellectual monopoly thing involve the steam engine to give you an idea. Like that's kind of what people feel is like, well, yeah, we have problems with the current patent system uh, because of software and all the weird stuff or whatever, but we can fix that. And the idea is that patents, patents as a concept are fine. It's just there's problems with the details. And they will always say, but like patents work great for, you know, physical inventions or, you know, like the steam engine. Boy, thumbs up on that. Right. Like, that's totally it's not <laughs> it's not a song. It's not, you know, it's a, it's the idea of like I've patented a new mousetrap, like the the historic notion of patents of like those are the good patents, man. That's the stuff like patents themselves are a great idea. They just kind of messed up a little bit. And this book goes right after them and says, no, patents conceptually are a bad idea. And here, let's use some examples from those great things that you think are so awesome. Physical inventions, nothing to do with technology, like the steam engine. Look how damaging patents were to, to uh, you know, the, the progress of mankind and the era of the steam engine. Uh, and there's many more examples in that book and many arguments. Again, you may not find them convincing, but that's the argument against intellectual monopoly uh, in the aptly titled book. Uh, a little bit more from John McCoy. He did actually did a blog post on this uh, inspired by our last show. That I link to in the show notes. It's called Red Pill, Blue Pill. Uh, here's a little section from it. One of the most devastating diseases in the world in terms of number of people affected and the severity of suffering is malaria. However, it's a disease limited to the tropics, and unfortunately, the population most hit are not in a market with deep pockets. On the other hand, we sure do have a lot of erectile dysfunction meds available these days because boner pills are by definition made for sale to rich old men. This is about the incentivizing thing that we have a system that incentivizes certain kinds of things and doesn't incentivize others. Part of this is about like global economy versus the local economy. And, uh, but even within, you know, even within America, we have plenty of, we don't have people suffering from malaria, but diseases of people without money or without insurance in a world where everyone doesn't have insurance, uh, there's less incentive to go after them. And if, if, if the way we deal with healthcare is by incentivizing research with money in exchange for the people getting treatment and how do they get you that money? And, you know, that's all tied up in the healthcare system. But like the, the, the overall idea is that, and this is all about governing, what you incentivize determines the world that you live in. And I, I don't accept the idea that because the current thing, current system is the way it is and the current things are incentivized, therefore that's the only way it could possibly work. In fact, I think if you change how things are incentivized, uh, you can change the shape of, of the society. And that's happened over the course of America's short history. The shape of society has been changed drastically by government policies and, and you know, the way different things are incentivized. Uh, so th that's why I feel this, what was it? Uh, someone referred to it as hand-wavingly confident. Yes, I do feel a hand-waving confidence in the idea that just that there are viable other ways for these things to work, even if I don't know what they are, simply because, uh, you know, I'm not so tied to the way, like, I don't think that the way things are are the only way things can be. And I'm not, I'm not scared, as scared as other people are that if we wreck the current thing, that nothing will bring, spring up to replace it. Because something always replaces it. Like, if you change the incentives, the system adjusts and there's disruption. But, like, is, you know, with the exception possibly of the Dark Ages, you know, there's very rarely a time, and even that you could say in, in the course of all human history is just a blip. You know, we rebound, we readjust. When you, when you change the structure... Water flows to, you know, whatever that expression is about water finding its root or whatever. That's that's the basic principle of government, that we can shape our society by changing the rule structure. And I don't think the current rule structure is completely un, you know, is the only way this could possibly be done. Despite the fact, like, you know, the idea is that because I, for the entire time I've been alive, this is the way it's been done. And so therefore no other way could possibly work, ignoring the rest of the world and all the other things people may not know about. Um how am I doing? One one thirty six. Not too bad. Ninety five minutes seventeen seconds. Yeah. So this was this was continued to be hand wavy. 
I'm, I totally agree on that. But I think I hope I've provided everyone who definitely should go to the show notes. If you want to to hear arguments that are less hand wavy, uh, they're all linked in the show notes. I don't think you'll agree with them, but they're certainly far from hand wavy. Uh, and the the thing I took from the feedback uh, is that one, I was actually surprised with how many people agreed with me. Most of them I didn't read. I only read the ones who seemed like it, whose opinions were interesting to me because they were actually you would expect them to be the opposite. Like the people who are uh, physicians or pharmacists or are a part of the industry. Like I, I expected more of them to be defending more people. Maybe people from drug companies don't listen, but pretty much all the people who are linked to those industries came down against it and saying it's not as awesome as people think it is. Whereas the people who were totally defending drug companies are either consumers of the product who appreciate what the drug companies are doing for them. Because as far as they're concerned, they don't care about how this thing came about. They just know they got a pill that helped them. Right. So thumbs up. Or just people talking in the abstract, uh, you know, I'm not involved in those industries, but I know someday I'm going to need their products, so I don't want to mess with them, right? But as you get closer and closer to the industry, people get crankier. Uh, so that that was definitely a trend I saw. Uh, and the people who are totally uh, against it, uh, very quickly you get into the the mindset of like, no one should be able to own anything that's intellectual property. No copyright, no patent, you know, uh, the pirate party or whatever they have in, in Sweden or Switzerland or one of those countries, Finland, where's the pirate party? Uh, but so that those were the themes I saw in the, in the feedback and Sweden, uh, Sweden. Yeah. And basically no one presented me with any information that changed my position and I don't think I presented anyone else with any information that changed their position. But I do think it was a useful discussion to have. I, the, what I got most out of it was uh, original intent. I have a much better view of that now. And I do see where it is useful. So I thank for the people who, who sent that feedback. Uh, and all these different pointers to different arguments for and against this type of thing uh, do provide me with uh, you know, more, more of a solid foundation for what I'm thinking about. I don't know if it's like it's the type of thing where when you read something that already agrees with you, you're like, man, this is really convincing. But is it really convincing or is it just like echoing things that you were already thinking in your mind in a less defined way? So I I don't know if it's possible to change anyone's mind on this. Uh, I would be perfectly happy if we could all agree that, that the current state of patents in the technology industry are bad and we could reform those. And I'm definitely not on a crusade to get the patent and copyright clause uh, removed from the Constitution because that will never happen within any of our lifetimes and probably not within the next hundred or thousand years unless there's some kind of nuclear war. I did it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hope people found this discussion, if not useful, then at least amusing or interesting. Uh, but uh, as many people were quick to point out, unlike gaming and technology... I can't hold forth authoritatively on any of these topics, but it doesn't mean it doesn't get my uh, dander up. You know, I can be, I can be inarticulately angry, angry, just like the rest of America. <laughs> I think that's the end of the patent follow-up and hopefully the end of the patent topic. Like, I, I feel like I've, I really have covered all bases here, mostly because like, what more can I say? But other people may have more things to say. <laughs> and you will and, and you will be obligated to respond to them. I don't know, but I've like exhausted the extent of my 
you know, my knowledge on the topic such as it is, which is very limited, right? Uh, but, you know, I, I think I think my position on this will continue to change as I think about it more. And if anything, I feel myself drifting more towards those crazy people who say no copyright on anything. I'm still not convinced by it, but maybe it's just because I read too much of that stuff or the Star Wars replicator idea. But really, if I extrapolate forward with technology and see what are the consequences of this, does everything become subject to copyright? And then if everything is subject to copyright, are we paralyzed as a society, right? You know, and you start having these crazy fantasies about, you know, making new governments on new planets or how would it work with this fantasy group of people who behave in fantastical ways? I think that's one of my big complaints against, oh, I know I don't want to get political, but uh, political philosophies that for them to work, you have to change human nature. I tend not to like those philosophies because I'm like, that's not going to, you know, you can't change human nature by changing the set of rules. What you have to do is construct a system such that all the things about human nature, both good and bad, work to make the system successful. Uh, so I'm not for any scenario that says, if only people would all get along, then the system would work great. Uh, I think it's possible to have a system that both fosters innovation and doesn't involve uh, patents as we currently know them. And not because I think people will be better behaved, but because I think you can arrange things in a way that makes all people's bad and good behavior lead us to a better place together. I'm, I'm not expecting people to change. I think you can just move the incentives around and, and get to uh, a better place. It's a very positive message. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah, someone, I remember the, the inspirational Steve Jobs quote from the last thing. Do you remember that? Like how the, how the world is made up of people like you and you can change it. Yeah. Someone slammed me for that saying, but he was saying you got to have good actual ideas, not this hand-waving stuff. <laughs> Hand-waving's a start. It's all got to start with hand-waving. You know, Steve Jobs would spit on you for <laughs> quoting him and then not providing concrete solutions to, to incentivize research without the patent system. That's not what he meant at all. Uh, maybe it's not what he meant. I'm sorry for disappointing Steve Jobs. So I, I get, believe it or not, that was the follow-up, and I have I have saw a couple of miniature topics here. All right. Uh, and I could leave them for next week, but I'm not going to. If you made it through this part of the show, congratulations to you. You've come to the <laughs> side. If you're now looking at the timeline again and laughing about how I was once again wrong about this being a short show, I apologize, but what else is new? You know I wasn't going to make it, and I didn't. Instagram. Talked about Instagram last time. I guess this is still a little bit of follow-up, at least it's not patent follow-up. Uh, Alex Chan was one person who bravely provided follow-up on something other than patents last week. Uh, and I was talking about how in Instagram is bought out by Facebook and they don't, they aren't particularly incentivized to make Instagram successful because if Instagram is successful or fails, it doesn't affect their fortunes anymore, really, because they're not a competitor. And he says, I think Facebook does have some motivation to keep Instagram going because it allows them to make similar buyouts in the future. If Instagram sinks without a trace, then other companies may be less keen to be acquired by Facebook. And he gives the example of Apple and Dropbox not being wanting to be acquired by Apple. This could cause headaches if there's another Instagram-like startup that Facebook feels threatened by because they've thrown away their ability to buy the company. Uh, I think that's an interesting notion. But we've had a long history of big companies buying small companies and then having them disappear into obscurity or crumble or just slowly die. Google does it all the time. From the perspective of outside people, they love this little company. Google buys them. That company stops enhancing their product. They go away. Uh, and it keeps happening. And Yahoo bought a whole bunch of companies. They kind of fizzled, disappeared, and were mistreated. And Facebook, if they do the same thing, like 
the basic problem is that, again, getting back to systems constructed to uh, work with people's instincts, people want money. Uh, and although you may uh, feel disincentivized to say, I wish that small company would not allow that big company to buy it, that feeling definitely exists. But if you were the founder of that small company and are looking at, uh, you know, millions or billions of dollars, the, it's their decisions that matter because they're the ones who control the company. And I think those people will continue to accept those offers because that's a lot of money. And now there are some that are going to send it like we want to go down their own. Facebook is a perfect example. Facebook itself refuses to get bought out. They said, no, we, you know, I'm not going to take the billions of dollars. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to be a pillar of the industry. That was Mark Zuckerberg's thing, right? But I don't think small companies being bought out and fizzling uh, is changing the ratio of people who think that. Uh, if you have that Mark Zuckerberg ambition, it's not because you see other little companies dying, probably, or, or not just because of that. And I, 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 you know, Facebook probably does not feel motivated to make sure these companies that it buy don't fizzle because, like, oh, then we won't be able to buy other companies. You can buy them because you're Facebook and you're big and your percentage. Like, if you run across a Mark Zuckerberg, well, you know, bad luck. But it's that ship has sailed. It's too late by changing your behavior to reassure anybody like, oh, we're totally going to take care of you. It's not going to be like we're a big company who has a small one and they got squandered. Nothing that Facebook do, does can change that perception. Either the founders of the company they're talking to want to get bought or they don't want to get bought. And nothing Facebook can actually do can change that. So I don't think I don't think that's the motivation that Facebook feels for uh, allowing itself to make acquisitions in the future. I think it has that ability and can't really change how successful that ability is based on how they treat this startup, at least, at least not significantly. I guess they could say we treat, our, we treat the little companies that we buy a little bit better than the other guy. But if, if there's someone out there who doesn't want to get bought, they don't want to get bought. And everyone else, those are, you know, there's a lot of zeros after the number in that check. Uh, one more thing here about the new MacBook Pro. I guess this is a topic and not follow-up because this follow-up from another person's show. <laughs> this is, uh, Marco <laughs> talked about the new MacBook Pro, I think, in his show. Yeah. Or rumors of the new MacBook. Rumors of the new macbook pro and i think we i talked about that a little bit with uh with jim dalrymple amplified as well but the rumor is that the new macbook pro 15 inch is going to be essentially a 15 inch macbook air uh and there there are lots of questions as to will it be upgradable it, that one of the things that people love about the macbook pro line is you can do things like take the the uh dvd drive out and put a second hard drive in even though apple might not want you to do that you can do that you can do that kind of thing you can easily upgrade the ram and of course the macbook airline it is a sealed container you can't open it you can't do it whatever you get it with it that's how it comes now i'm sure people could rip it apart but you know with a mac with a, a macbook pro you just pop off the little panel and throw ram in there if you want and most people can do that comfortably themselves that's the the big concern. Of course, there's also talk about the uh, Retina displays coming to potentially MacBook Pro and the Airs. Yeah, and I I mostly was going off Marco's reading of these rumors, uh, and a couple of things confused me about it. One, that the idea of a Retina display, I'm slightly confused by that. I'm kind of in the camp with Marco that I wouldn't be surprised if that actually took longer than we think it would, not because of the technology or anything, but just because... You know, Mac OS X has had this weird dance with high-resolution displays where they were going to have adjustable resolution where you could change the scale factor. 
And then and later releases like in line, they said, okay, okay, forget about that adjustment thing where it's like 1x, 1.5x, 2x. That's too complicated because you got pixel cracks and we need to have integer multiples. And in fact, we only have that one integer multiple and that's 2x. That totally worked for us on iOS. We doubled the screen res, kept everything the same size. Everything got more detailed. That's what we're going to go with. And they call it high DPI mode in uh, Lion. You can enable high DPI mode. And then basically, uh, since you don't have a retina display, what happens is that your effective resolution halves and everything is drawn with twice as many pixels and current displays that's way too cramped like you take your you know 1000 by 2000 screen and it becomes a 500 by 1000 screen because i can't do the math in my head for the actual resolutions uh the problem is that all these things 1x you know 1.5x 2x 3x even just the plain old 2x high dpi mode they have not ever looked right in any build of Mac OS X, even on a simple application like TextEdit. Like in my Mac OS X reviews, I always give, a, here's a screenshot of TextEdit scaled. And so the last one, I'm like, here it is at 2x. It's a big damn mess. Like things don't draw right. Things aren't in the right position. Like it doesn't mean these are insurmountable problems. But practically speaking, Apple has yet to release a version of this operating system that works correctly when you double everything. And so I'm like, look, they're going to come out with Retina Displays. Isn't that, doesn't that have to be tied to a new version of the operating system? Uh, as far as I know, the current version of Lion still doesn't work correctly in this way. So I, I, it feels weird to me that they would release notebooks with a retina display before they have an OS that can actually use them. Because then what would it do? It just do everything doubled? Like, what the heck is the point? You know, maybe, like, you say, oh, they'll do just what they did in iOS. Like, but they haven't been able to. They keep trying, and, and too many apps draw weirdly. Even, like, if they can't get text editor to look right, it shows they just have not... They just haven't they haven't dedicated resources for it or they haven't taken it seriously. But man, once a Mac arrives with a 2x resolution screen, don't they have to have an operating system that can use it? Because you can't just, you can't just show put it, it out there. Yeah, everything would be microscopic. You wouldn't be able to see a damn thing on it. <laughs> you know, so like. It, so does that then dispel the rumor or does it just simply imply that if Apple's going to do this, that they are ready and. They're it gonna, confuses me. Yeah. It, it confuses me because I think that they would have to be like, I guess if you delay the notebooks until Mountain Lion is out and Mountain Lion does this awesome, then you're all set. But all the things I'm reading are like, oh, new notebooks are like imminent, right? And how can you even ship the thing? Like maybe it's just like fixed in, in pixel doubled mode and just everything is pixel doubled. And then as Marco pointed out, things tend to look kind of ugly in pixel doubled mode, at least if we're going by the iPad retina display. So are you shipping... Mac laptops that are fixed in pixel double mode because they ship with Lion. And they look worse than the laptops they're replacing. It just seems odd to me. So, I mean, surely Retina Macs are coming, guaranteed. But the timing is confusing to me. And I think it would be totally weird for them to ship them with Retina displays. But you can't actually use them as Retina displays. Everything is just doubled for you. So, that... Uh, um, something's wrong there. Either the rumors are wrong that they have Retina displays or the rumors are wrong about the timing or both. Uh, the second thing is on size and weight. The the rumor that Marco relayed was about it would be thinner but not wedge-shaped. You know, take out the optical drive, you know, yada, yada, all the stuff we know they're going to do. Yeah. Uh, but don't make it into a wedge. Uh, instead, just make it, like, thinner overall. And that confuses me because it's like, why would you do that? Like, when I when I envision this in my head, I said, well, the wedge is, is the perfect shape for it because, you know, there's family resemblance. But ignoring that, the wedge lets you have an Ethernet port, for example, on the top part, because it's thicker there, right? And then you taper, and it gets thinner, and you don't need the thick ports over there. It's like, well, if you, if you make the entire thing too thin to put an Ethernet port on, like, what are you gaining by that? You're like, 
I'm not saying you have to have every single port, like you don't need a Fireway or 100 point because you got Thunderbolt and stuff like that, but Ethernet is my sticking point. It's like, what's the point of a 15-inch laptop? Is it just the bigger screen? Is it just a 15-inch Air? If you're going to have something you call the 15-inch MacBook Pro and you remove the optical drive from the current ones, a wedge shape seems like you, it would let you have more battery, more ports, while still being super thin because, hey, at the end, it tapers. Uh, so I, I'm still hoping that it is a wedge, either it's that it's a wedge shape or that they don't make it so thin that you have to ditch the Ethernet port. And I, I'm sure Apple's like, well, Ethernet port is not long for this world. Wi-Fi is getting faster than the Ethernet. It's, you know, it's silly to even have it. But I think we're still in that transition period, uh, as evidenced by the Thunderbolt display that has on the back of it an Ethernet port, because they understand when you're in your home network, sometimes you want to copy a file from one Mac to another, and it, you know, it's much faster to do it over gigabit Ethernet than it is to do it over current Wi-Fi standards, right? Uh, certainly the Wi-Fi that most people have in their houses, which isn't even the fastest it can possibly be, you know, for a variety of reasons. So I really hope they either don't make it so skinny that you can't fit an Ethernet port or they wedge shape it or taper it in some way. Because then on the thick end, you got room for the port. And, and like I said, I think making the thick end gives you more room for shoving more battery in there, smushing up the internals so they stack vertically instead of just horizontally. Whatever you need to do, I think there's more space for you to put stuff instead of just trying to make it super thin and uniform. Uh, glass or no glass on the display. I'm with Marco that I don't like the glass. I think the glass is really heavy and all the MacBook Airs don't have the glass. So that's the clear trend in Apple's laptops is away from the big heavy glass and towards, you know, the, the MacBook Air style screen surround, which is still a glossy, glossy screen just with no glass on it. Uh, and when I'm thinking about these things, I'm trying to think about like, what's wrong with the current 15 inch? I'm ignoring the 17 inch for now because God knows what's going to happen to that thing. It's kind of like the Mac Pro of the... Uh, it's, it's, a wor- it's worse than the Mac yeah, Pro of that line. It's more absurd than the Mac yeah. Pro. It's, some people like it. So maybe that, you know, soldiers on in some form. But what's wrong with the 15-inch? Uh, in this modern era of MacBook Airs and iPads and stuff, the things that, that I see as wrong as 15-inch are, it's too heavy, obviously. Everything is always too heavy. But now, like, next to the iPad and the Airs, the 15-inch feels like a battleship, right? It's too slow, not like CPU-wise, but it feels slower because it doesn't have a standard SSD. You know, the air is like you get no choice. It's come with an SSD and that SSD is much nicer than the crappy laptop drives that you used to buy and things. So even if you buy the cheapest MacBook Air you can, you still get an SSD. But if you buy the cheapest MacBook Pro, you do not and it feels slower because of it. And the other thing is that it's too hot. Uh, so I think they will go to stock SSDs, if not in this revision, eventually. The hotness, that'll be taken care of by having, you know, the new chips, lower power chips uh, and uh, it, better integrated GPUs so they don't need a discrete GPU and all that stuff, just the general march of progress. And it being heavy, as Marco pointed out, the CD drives are not heavy. That's not saving a lot of weight. But what you do save weight on is by removing that and removing other peripherals, you can have less case, less material, less things stuffed inside it and getting rid of the glass going to the MacBook Air. Like you can shave some pounds off just by shaving volume off, you know, because most of the volume on a 15 inch is filled with something. And so if you can get rid of that volume, you will be saving weight, even if your things you're getting rid of are not particularly dense. Uh, so that's my predictions for the MacBook Pro is either it comes out at the same time as the operating system or it doesn't have a retina display. And I'll be very surprised if it has a retina display, but no OS to support it. And I really hope it's a wedge with no glass and an Ethernet port. Not that I'm going to buy one either way, but those are my hopes for the 15-inch. I just, I think that Apple has made one thing that I like everything that you said, except for the Ethernet port. I just don't think that Apple cares about that. I think if you want an Ethernet port on your portable computer, then you get one of their nice displays 
and it has the Ethernet port in it, and that's how and it connects with Thunderbolt, and that's how you get your Ethernet port. I think you're right that they don't care, but I care. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with you. I, I, I like it too, but I'll tell you what, I, I had a Mac Pro for a long I still have one, MacBook Pro rather. And I still have the MacBook Pro. I don't use it quite as much because I've got all these other machines now and things have kind of changed. But I had the Ethernet port on there. And you know what I did? I did use it. I didn't use it all the time. But if I knew that I was going to be working and docked up for the bulk of the day for hours and hours at a time, of course, I would plug that thing right in every time. And I think there are plenty that the kind of people that like a MacBook Pro are the same kind of people that like having an Ethernet port and that don't want to have a dongle that's going to be slower than Wi-Fi uh, or, or be forced to dock to an Apple display in order to get it. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're, like, file transfer is where it comes up. And if you're working with video files and you want to transfer them, like, do you, I guess you connect to the, the your Thunderbolt RAID with your Thunderbolt port or something. But if you're on a network, there's just no substitute for gigabit Ethernet uh, in most places. Now, Wi-Fi is getting much faster very rapidly, but in most people's houses, they don't have the super latest, you know, double radio, five gigahertz and two gigahertz and standard, you know, like, and conditions are not ideal and you might be far, far from the access point. Uh, I, in my own home, I haven't even upgraded to the dual radio thing. And I have to have a network that's BG compatible because of like old TiVo devices that use the wireless and they don't support N yet. Uh, and well, you know, I, have, I think I have iPod touches that don't support N actually. Uh, or some other devices. So my, my home wireless network is not as fast as it could be. And even if it was, it would still be faster. So sometimes I accidentally start copying a file from another Mac and I see how slow the little thing is going. I'm like, oh, I made a terrible mistake. Stop the transfer. <laughs> go over, know, right. plug in the Ethernet port to the thing, and it's just it's just so much faster. And it, obviously it's on its way out. Soon Wi-Fi will be faster. But, you know, I, again, I like the Mac Pro. I would plead with Apple. Just one more. Give us just one more with an Ethernet port. You, it seems like you got all, you know, you don't have to make this thing as thin as an air. You can make the wedge just barely thick enough for an Ethernet th- port at the end and then make it taper and it'll still feel pretty thin and it'll still be lighter. Uh, so that's not my prediction of what will come. That's my plea. Please, Apple, give us an Ethernet port one more time. And of course, give us one more Mac Pro. I have no predictions to make about that either, but everyone knows I want them to make one more and I hope they really do. Uh, and finally, to, to round this thing out, <laughs> I wanted to get to this and so now we're going to cross two hours because I want to get to this. Uh, there you go. You had a question this week. This has this is in my notes as gaming question from Dan. Yes, and your question is about cutscenes, cinematic openings, and that kind of thing. But right. that's all I have in your question. So, what is your question? Okay, it was more. It wasn't. It wasn't a specific question as much as it's a topic I would like to bring up with you, and and that is very early on. But think back to the days when, and I I'm sure that lots of computer games had this, but the ones that really strike me as being used in order to sell the game we're back in the early days of the playstation maybe it was even before that you'll you'll correct me i'm sure but that's when i remember the huge marketing campaigns on tv and things showing cutscenes, intros and things like that as uh selling huge selling points for the game and i remember plenty of games on the computer that you'd go and you you know there would be these huge cutscenes, these big intense you know, cutscenes with lots and lots of things happening. Very dramatic, like mini movies. And I remember talking to people. This is decades ago. This is how, this is, this is where we will start sounding really old. But I remember people saying to me, I thought the whole game was going to look like that. But it doesn't. And I said, well, of course not. That probably took, you know, that's, it's like it's showing you a video. It's not, it's not rent. Now, a lot of the games today those cutscenes are being generated and rendered, of course, by 
the consoles themselves. But typically, what they are showing is cutscenes when they show these intros. And a case in point of this is this Diablo 3, which I, I know you're not playing it, right? I played the demo, but I'm not, I haven't bought the game, so I'm not playing it. No. Okay. Well, they have these cinematic, you know, cutscenes, the intros where it shows things, and none of what it's showing is actually gameplay. It's, it's something else. But they still show these things as if they are, you know, part of the game, but they're not. They're just the cutscenes. So let me ask you this the cutscenes have never done anything for me because it's not the gameplay, it's not the game itself. Now, who are these cutscenes for typically? I'm, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one that did work. Remember this uh, Mario, as you say, this Mario? There was some kind of thing at the end when you finally beat the the last guy and it plays this song. Everybody's sort of marching around, dancing. Everyone's happy. What game is this? Which Mario it's one game? of them Mario games. Which one? I don't, I don't remember. It was a long, a long time. Is it like 2D or 3D? Oh, it was definitely a side-scroller. Okay. And everyone's marching around. They're all happy. Yay, we, you know, you won. And... This is the game where if you did a certain thing, you beat a certain thing a certain way, then the turtles would look different. Remember, they would look different. Somebody's listening is going to know what I'm talking about. But if you did something, it had the map. It was the first one that had like the big map that you could walk around and it had Yoshi. You could ride Yoshi in it. He had his little, you know, Super Mario World. I'm not not an authority on on old 2D Mario. Okay, well, that's somebody will tell me which one this was. Anyway. You know, at the end of it, there's this big song and dance, this big uh, whoop-de-doo about, okay, you won, great. That, But it was all done, you know, with the game. The game, this was the game. It wasn't, and, and sometimes these cutscenes to me, they show that they don't even show the gameplay on these commercials. They just show these cutscenes. And I, I meant to write down which commercial was on the air because there's a commercial that's, that's on TV now all the time on whatever this channel is that my kid watches. The Assassin's Creed 3? Sure. Yes. I mean, it, it, well, it doesn't matter. But the whole commercial is, is, a cut, is showing the cutscenes. Now, are, so here's my question for you. Are people buying the games to play the games? Or are they buying them because of the cutscenes, which is what is being advert? Like if, if you see this, event, this Avengers movie, right? They show the Hulk, he jumps from one thing to another, he punches something, and then uh, Iron Man's flying around a little bit. When you go to the movie, I would, as a moviegoer, I would expect to, that to be like what the movie's like. And apparently it is. In these games, though, when they show these previews for the games, you may see a cutscene like that. But it's, it doesn't feel like it's part of the game. It's like, look, I just flew the rocket and I landed in the base. And now, it, like, cutscene time. I was always impressed with the Halo games because their cutscenes were the game. It was the game. You were in the game. I love that. I thought that was great. Very effective way to do it. But so many of these games, that's not the case. It's like, and now we will show you a cutscene in which the character who you normally never see like this talks to the enemy who also doesn't really look like this. And then you're back to like the little, you know, little uh, sprites running around the screen shooting at each other. You know what? Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, let's see where you're going with it. And before I answer your question, we do have uh, a confirmation that it was Super Mario World uh, from High Indian. He says, if you beat all 96 levels in Super Mario World, then the seasons change from spring to autumn and the enemies change sprites. That was a great great thing. That's the game you're thinking of. That was a great game. I beat that whole thing. That's back in the day. Yeah, classic. So for this thing on cutscenes and stuff, it seems like a couple of threads of concern. One is the idea that it's, that it's like false advertising or it's misleading, that you are you are get, enticing people to play a game by showing them something 
that isn't part of the game that you play. Uh, and some, in some cases, may not even be something that you see. Like, uh, I mean, you brought the example of seeing an Iron Man or, or an Avengers trailer or something where something happens, and you'd be disappointed if that wasn't in the movie. Uh, I, that actually does happen. There are trailers with scenes that don't make it into the movie. Uh, but the general point that, like, all right, so this is the kind of thing you're going to see in the movie. And you go to the movie, and you know, that is the kind of thing you see. You, you know, it's not as if they show you this awesome computer graphics in the trailer, and then you go to the movie, and it's a bunch of guys wearing costumes hitting each other with cardboard swords, right? Uh, but this this idea of showing something that isn't necessarily reflective of what the game looks like has a long, long and, and proud history. Like, if you can remember the, the, the paintings on the covers of Atari games, do you remember those? Yes. Like, those games are a bunch of blocks moving around <laughs> right. on the screen. <laughs> this, and then they'd have this painting of, like, centipede with a giant monster right, or yacht, coming at you. Yeah, and, it was very exciting. And you'd look at the R's Revenge, and, and then you see, like, you get it, and it was still a great game, but it didn't look like that. Yeah. And so... Believe it or not, I think that's actually part of the experience of gaming and not uh, a, a misleading advertising type thing. Of course, people mi- are misled by all sorts of things, but th- those I bring up those covers because it's such a, an absurd contrast between what you see on the cover and what you get. And you may say, oh, well, no one expected those kind of graphics because it was obviously a painting and not a screenshot and right. no one was misled. That. But, but at the same time, people didn't know what video games were. And some kid in the store is like, I'm going to get this game. Look at this. This is amazing looking. And they get it. It's breakout and you're like a little block going back and forth bouncing another little block up at a bunch of other little blocks but the cover was like lasers and spaceships and you know little kids are misled by things i think that's just part of growing up uh but the other part of it is that i see those type of covers and those type of here's this amazing thing it's part of the idea of gaming or or novels or anything that's kind of like buying a novel with an amazing thing on the cover and you're like and i read it and there weren't even any pictures uh yeah no there aren't (laughs) pictures but what happens in your head while you're playing a game is not necessarily limited by what appears on the screen. So those fantastical covers are as exciting and dynamic as the things going on in someone's head when they're playing Pac-Man or Breakout or Centipede, even though the graphics don't show that in the same way that a cover of a book showing a dragon and a guy with a sword clashing and lightning in the sky or whatever. There's no pictures in the book, but when you read the book, that's what's in your head. And I think games are a lot like that because they are, you know, an abstraction and a a simulation of some situation. And you do, like when you're reading a book, bring a lot to it from your own imagination that enhances the experience. And part of the cover of of a game or, or, you know, even for cutscenes and stuff like that is, or not cutscenes, but like advertisements or trailers for games is trying to express to you the feeling they think you're going to get when you're playing this game. Now, as we get into the modern era and we get closer uh, to parity between those two things, uh, it, it becomes a little bit trickier because... Well, first of all, a lot of the game engines we have now look better than cutscenes from 20 years ago. Oh, for sure. Someday, the entire game will be like this cutscene. Now, the entire game looks better than that cutscene. Yes. Like, they they rendered that for 15 minutes each frame of animation. Now, we do it in real time. So, that's the march of progress. But, uh, and I think everyone is familiar enough with games that they're not misled. But the second question is, like, all right, so what... We know that there's the cutscenes, and we know there's the gameplay, and there's still a gap between them because you can render much more awesome things when you have, you know, when you have an hour to render each frame on this big cluster of computers, right? What's the point of having that pre-rendered stuff, especially in an age where the current game looks so good? It kind of depends on the genre of game and what you're looking at uh, to get out of the game, and a lot of the games that, that lean heavily on cutscenes are they're very narrative in structure, and it's more like an interactive story than uh, than like a traditional freeform game. And there's a continuum there. 
uh, if you go too far, people feel like they're just pressing a button to go from cutscene to cutscene. It's like have a five minute long cutscene where it's really cool and it's fun and all. And then you're like, all right, now I get to play. And you walk three steps, open a door, and now another cutscene comes. And you're like, am I even playing this game or am I just basically walking a dude through a world to trigger new cutscenes? And the cutscenes take longer than the game. But believe it or not, some people like that type of thing because it's a way for them to get a story they wouldn't otherwise see with a little bit of gameplay mixed in. So I don't. I think the people who buy those things, like there's a market for that type of thing. And that's why they keep making them because they can make things look cooler and more dramatic in cutscenes, and they probably always will be able to than they can make real-time rendered. Just It's just a, the nature of technology. And if that's what you want out of a game, well, there are companies that make that type of game for you. With advertisement, it's similar and they're trying to entice you to play a game by showing you the coolest thing. But gamers know when they're seeing a cutscene and when they're seeing an engine. And for a long, long time, there's been this big thing about if they show you a preview of a game online or at a, a gaming conference or something, they have, this is not pre-rendered footage. This is actual gameplay. Like they, they emphasize like, you're going to think this is pre-rendered because it looks so awesome, but it totally isn't. This is what the game is going to look like. The only time you get into trouble is when there's a mismatch in communication where you show something, but don't put a disclaimer that this is pre-rendered and people think it's real. Like if you're not, if you're dishonest through error of omission and communicating, is this real time? Is this, uh, a cutscene, or is this just a trailer that's not even going to be in the game? Uh, I, the market has shown that people like some amount of that full pre-rendered stuff. Even in games like you know Diablo or whatever, you're looking down on these little, basically things that look like miniatures and moving them around. That's totally different than the cutscenes, right? But people enjoy the cutscenes because they're cool, and as long as they're not overdone, that's what people want. And the, the final take on this is what you're talking about, is in-engine cutscenes. Some types of games and some game makers moved to in-engine cutscenes as soon as they possibly could. Nintendo is one of them, mostly because Nintendo probably doesn't have the budget or resources to do pre-rendered cutscenes. But let's ignore that for a second and pretend that it was entirely based on uh, artistic intent. They were doing in-engine cutscenes in games that did not look particularly good. Like on the Nintendo 64 or the Zelda Ocarina of Time and the Nintendo 64 has all in-engine cutscenes. And it's not looking so hot. Like if they did them pre-rendered, it would look way cooler, but they didn't have room on the cartridge or whatever. But even, even in... Um, their modern games, they prefer to do in-engine cutscenes. Uh, and the kind of view of that is they're saying, well, they don't want to take you out of the experience. They want you to feel it's not the type of game where there's a big narrative story and you're kind of participating in it. You are making the story yourself. And even though there are things where we have to show you events unfolding in the world, the cutscenes are not long and the transitions are smooth and it's all of a piece. And we think that provides a, like in a Zelda game, you want to feel like you're on this epic adventure. You don't want to feel like you are uh, causing a movie of an epic adventure to happen and in between causing you to move from one section of the movie to the next. You want to be part of the the, uh, the adventure. So in-engine cutscenes really help with that. And I tend to prefer games with in-engine cutscenes and don't like games that feel more like interactive movies. Yeah. But the game industry makes the entire range of product because people like the entire range of product. I mean, don't get me wrong, John. Uh, when you see these cutscenes, man, these are amazing. Look how far, look how far we've come, John, as a civilization to make these amazing cutscenes. And they do look really, really great. And I can see how they would bring you into the game. But it just today, into it, it seems weird to have this game, which in and of itself, I think looks pretty darn cool. And then you do have the games that you're describing now with the in-engine cutscenes, which those tend to me to be so effective and so cool that I could understand having like the intro to the game, set the scene, set the story, have the cool thing. And then you don't even have to go back to that again. 
You know, now we, we're in the game now. We don't need to see a cutscene every time I pop open a little treasure chest or something. Let's just do all the rest of it in, in engine. But, you know, look, look at what Halo did. Those guys had, had a pretty much straight on. Yeah, it, it's kind of an anachronism at this point uh, because the golden era of, of cutscenes was probably around the original PlayStation and the Final Fantasy series yeah. where they really you had a confluence of finally we have the storage capacity to do this and we have the computing capacity to render cool stuff like this, but our graphics in the game are still kind of crappy. So now is the time we're really lean on these cutscenes. Do you remember I, just flipping flipping CDs? You just you get to a certain point in the game, you put in another CD. Yeah, the not shows, not DVD, but game. CD. Yeah, because they were all filled up with, with just uh, cutscenes. Cutscenes, yeah, with with video. I mean, the, the worst. Was you know, you walk did. in through a door, and oh, I didn't mean to go through that door. Switch out, <laughs> switch out the CD two times just to see the different scene over again. Yeah, the, the one friend that I'm glad disappeared is when they used to use uh, video of live action, like of actors in costumes. You remember when they did that? <laughs> That did not go well. <laughs> I, do, I don't remember any game that I played that had that in it. Yeah, it was high quality games that I did. Although, you know, Mist did that, if you remember. They had videos of people in costumes. The creators the of the game. The first Mist had that? Yeah, you bring me the blue pages. That was, that was oh, uh, one, of, one of the dudes who made the game. They, they played <laughs> they played their own characters. They were they put on their robe and wizard hat and, you know, wow. <laughs> went for it. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think the trend is away from pre-rendered cutscenes, at least not leaning them on them as heavily, but the people who are using them are getting better at them. And so, you know, for example, like the, the old Republic, which is an MMO, how can you even incorporate, you know, cutscenes in an MMO and, and like with pre-rendered and everything, but man, some of those pre-rendered cutscenes are, uh, most of those pre-rendered cutscenes are better than the prequels, <laughs> you know, whether they're trailers or they happen in the game or they're, they're conveying the big epic story. They look amazing and they're interesting. And as long as they keep that balance and don't make you feel like you're you're hitting the X button to get your way through a movie, uh, I, I don't really have a problem with them. But I do tend to prefer games with in-engine cutscenes. Well, that was my question. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. I, I could go on more about talking about uh, game-ending cinematics, but we're supposed to be leaving gaming behind. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll save that for the next show because we're way over. We started early today, so it's okay, but we are way over. I apologize to everybody for going long. And if you like long shows, you're welcome. (laughs) All right. So go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 68 for all of the notes that uh, that John uh, and and I have added, the links, notes, and such, uh, so that you can follow along, play along at home. We appreciate you listening. Thanks to our sponsors, Hover.com, Rackspace.com. And uh, you can follow uh, John on Twitter, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We really appreciate you listening. We'll be back next week. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.